you know, Russ, I was thinking of uh, last week's very long episode, and you know what that reminded me of? What's that? It reminded me of uh, when we were in college. Not me and you. I mean, we weren't in college together, but in our college days, we used to like stay up all night and listen to records and talk about them, you know, and that, that seemed like the most important thing in the world. And I think we're kind of reachieving that here on the uh, Adult Music Podcast. How about that? Because uh, that long... Um, you know, that long episode kind of, I think we kind of attained collegiate status once again, as far as interest in music goes. It might be something like that. Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, you know, one of the the bad things that's happened with all of the uh, technological advancement is that uh, music has become less of a shared experience. Yeah. Um, you know, when we were young, like you say, we would uh, invite our friends over, we would listen to... Uh, you know, at, at first, you have vinyl together. Uh, mm. And then when it switched to CD, uh, when I was in university, I didn't have a lot of money. I, I didn't get my CD player, the first one, until a couple years in. Uh, yeah. But I knew a guy who had one in a system. And then, yeah, I would go over to his uh, dorm room and we would just spend hours uh, listening and talking uh, about right. music while we listened to it together. Right. Uh, but these days, yeah, everyone's got the earbuds in and their own little playlists. And so the shared aspect of it uh, has kind of got lost in the downloads in some yeah. ways. So, yeah, uh, when you can talk about things together and share well, music. No, yeah, you share way. music. You hear things you ordinarily wouldn't have heard, too. Right. Because your friends will introduce you to new things. Right. Um, and that was really, yeah. Okay, they, they a lot of friend, a lot of my favorite bands from those days, like Friends, turned me on to it, and even today, uh, I think a lot of the uh, classical music I get is from recommendations from magazines, from you know uh, now the Presto Music website is very good. They have they now have a um you know new new releases feature every uh, Friday, and I kind of look down that list, and there's yeah. usually there are usually a lot of uh, good uh, recommendations on that. Oh, yeah, so there's a lot of good places to find things. I found some good things, things. from there. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're just thinking, maybe I mentioned this on an episode before, but one of the first friends I met at university and who I had a lot of uh, interesting experiences with uh, came up and pounded on my door because as he was walking below, he heard uh, a cannonball and coal train blasting out right. of my window. <laughs> so he wondered, who's playing that? And he came up and yeah. uh, that's how we met. So that yeah. wouldn't have happened with earbuds. Uh, so he would have never known. Yeah, I met this guy simply because um, you know he heard uh, the Rolling Stones' "Exile on Main Street" coming from my dorm room when I was a freshman. Right? <laughs> you know, and yeah. he, he totally related. He knew he knew he had a kindred spirit then. Tribes. Yeah. That's how we met. Right. Exactly. Well, happy Halloween yeah, we, too. Happy Halloween. Although I have to say, I'm more of a Hallows Day person myself. Oh, I like Day. the tranquility of having all the saints around on November 1st. I'm kinda, right. I think it's a classical music thing. <laughs> you don't want the, uh, I mean enough the hell night kind of things. Yeah, I meet enough ghouls every day the whole year that I don't need a special, <laughs> a special day for it. Yeah. It's like yeah, mon- I, Monster Mash Monday, you know. Yeah, they we seem to we seem to have brought them all in existence too in recent years. You know, That's they're right. just everywhere. You know, those zombie movies. It's it's almost like uh, I'm living that in real life now, yeah. except without the guns and things. The zombies are there. Yeah. yeah. They are there. Well, here we okay, are. Okay, so 
This is yeah. By the time people hear this, you know, the uh, Halloween will be long. It'll be long gone. gone. Yeah. Good thing. Yeah. One and, more thing, I just want to say, uh, you know, Joe Rogan when he, on his po- podcast, his guests often say that the time flew by when he says we just did three hours or something like that. And I think last night, last week was sort of like the the same, you know, because we were just talking about this music that we really liked a lot, and uh, it just flew by. I was like looking at the time. I was like shocked, man. We what were we talking about? We were just in the zone, I don't know, it just and it just by. felt really good. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, so we had music we really liked last week. That was good. Most weeks we do, and I think we will. Yeah, this, this week, week we do. We do to an extent. I, I have I have quite a I have my work cut out for me tonight actually oh, okay. because um, I have music I like, but approaches that I'm kind of unfamiliar with, and that was a little surprise. Okay. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna wind up talking around a lot of the stuff instead of like hitting on the head because I don't know that I have the vocabulary for this. It's hard to put in we'll words find out. sometimes, but it's fun to yeah. do. Yeah. And so we'll anyway, lunch. who are we? We'll launch in to episode <laughs> yeah. 35 of Adult is it, Music. Is it? 35, it's episode wow. 35. Uh, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Yes, I, and I'm, I'm Mike. And- he's Mike on that mic. This is Russ on this mic yeah. here. Yeah. And uh, we're bringing you every week six releases, recent releases, three in classical, three in jazz. Hmm. And um, on our podcast, uh, the music that we'll talk about you can find links for uh, to Spotify and Apple Music for each album. Uh, also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the uh, recordings in one place, and that's on Deezer, uh, where you can also catch the podcast. Uh, and you can follow us there uh, for both the podcast and the playlists at username Adult Music Podcast. I usually get the uh, playlist up right away on Monday uh, if we've got everything worked out so you can listen to the music uh, for a week before we talk about it uh, if you'd like to do that. Uh, If you can't see all those links or the descriptions on whatever platform or app you're listening on because we're on pretty much everything, uh, you Mm. can always come over to our host site, Podbean, uh, where all the links and everything is easy to uh, see and follow. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform uh, you listen to us on. Uh, If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, we'd appreciate it. That will help us get listed in the browsing uh, categories on each app. That helps us grow our audience, and uh, that's always a nice thing. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, our email address is adult music podcast all one word at gmail.com and we'd be happy to hear from you yeah hey tonight anyone has any recommendations too you can uh, send us some we'd like if you want to know what we think about yeah the stuff you like any comments requests uh we'll be happy to hear from you tonight we're going to um look at things from the uh low end as we get going yeah. in here. Um, so bass yeah. is the place tonight. So make sure your woofers are working when you get yeah. the uh, playlist. And uh, yeah, you Make sure those woofers there. are working. And, you know, you might, uh, being that the World Series is happening at the moment, it might be over um, in two days. Um, Atlanta has taken a, a lead in the World Series. You don't know what's going to happen. But... Uh, so you could say the bases are loaded. Bases I guess. are loaded on this episode yeah. and this week. I think that's going to be our episode title this there you week. Go. Yeah, and these bases are certainly loaded on on this episode. Well, in classical, we have one, um, you know, double bass recording, a double bass soloist. The other two don't really relate to the title, but uh, that's okay. 
<laughs> we have all bases in the jazz section, right. which is very cool. Although they're, you know, they're the band leaders. They're not necessarily yeah, yeah. focused at the center of attention. So there we go. So we just want to get right into this or what? Ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. All right, CPA. so we start. Yeah, we start with the earliest and one of our favorite composers here on the uh, the uh, adult music podcast. We should put a list of our favorite things. Uh, C.P.E. Bach, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach is one of them. We could and do we're that both for big Christmas. Fans of his music. Our favorite yeah. things. Yeah. Our favorite things. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we have a we have that. a short list of things we both really <laughs> love. It's things the adult music podcast love, not things that. Each of us individually loves it. It's got to be like a, a, a shared, shared thing, <laughs> thing shared for thing. us. And one of them is the music of C.P.E. Bach. Okay. All right. So this week we've done, I don't know, have we done a C.P.E. Bach recording before on this podcast? Hmm, we I might think we have. have. Yeah. But yeah, I there have was to say. One. There was the, uh, yeah. Yeah. This one is, this one is different. It's a different oh, side. Yeah. It's a different side of uh, C.P.E. Well, Bach. it's not a different side. It's a di- I think it's a different approach. Although they do say um, that these are these are late works, yes. these are sort of well, written in the. That's what I mean. A different, a different facet of his personality, and I think maybe it's because it's his mature works that uh, it, it shows a different part of his character. I think. Okay, so who is Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach? You might ask. He is the uh, oldest surviving son of the great Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, there was a. Uh, a son that was older than him, but I think he died like a month after he was born, or that something was like that. PDQ As, Bach, right? No, that no. Don't don't confuse people. <laughs> oh man, that's PDQ Bach. Of course, is Peter Schickley. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. There's also now, by the way, well, I'll give this guy a shout out. There's also a WTF Bach. Oh really? Who, uh, I didn't know about pod, that. He's a podcaster. He oh, has a he has a podcast called the WTF Bach Podcast, and he's been breaking down the um the uh, the art of fugue. On his uh, podcast, and he's he's about to finish it, so I'm kind of wondering what he's going to go to next. Mm. I have been listening, so a shout out to him. I, I find that podcast really interesting, and uh, we have a recording of um, the Art of Fugue coming up one day. I don't know when I'm going to program it, but uh, Daniel Trifonov, the pianist, the Russian pianist, has a new album out, and he oh, does yeah. the entire. I've been listening to Art that. of That's Fugue. Good. On the, you listen to it? I yeah. didn't hear it. Yeah. yeah, and it's got other stuff on it too, but he does all of the Art of Fugue. Uh, and I'm thinking, after hearing the WTF Bach podcast, it, it's the detail that it goes into is so overwhelming that I almost feel like I'm frozen. Like I can't talk about these works no. anymore. He's done, he, it's, it's pretty amazing. You know? I think we'll give an overall, like, we'll uh, give a different spin on it. Yeah. In, we'll give an overall impression. I'm not going to get into the whole detail that he gets into with that. Anyway, give a listen to that if you're interested in those works, because uh, he really goes into real detail on them. Okay. Anyway, this this is called this album is called simply Carl Philip Emmanuel Bach. It's on the Alpha label, uh, a French label, one of our favorite labels. In fact, I think they're up there with uh, Hyperion. As and I think Harmonia Mundi I like a lot as some mm. of my personal favorite labels anyway, um, just for the the what they put out and also the artwork they do they generally have good album covers, uh, not always a given in classical music I should <laughs> add. All right, classical music has some of the worst album covers imaginable. Uh, we're gonna get to one of those in a few weeks. <laughs> I just got a new album that I uh, we'll we'll talk about it when it comes up. Anyway, this um. Album is by a uh, 
an ensemble called Nevermind. It's one word, Nevermind, sort of like the Nirvana album. Mm. And I'm kind of wondering if they named themselves after that. They don't have uh, a naked kid in a pool or anything. They don't anything. have a naked kid on the cover no, who's, who's suing again for, yeah. you know, for his use. This, yeah, so story, don't even get yeah. me started on that. There are okay. loads of, there's loads of stuff on YouTube about it, and I pretty much agree with them. Let's just say that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this the album cover it has uh, four um, hot air balloons on it. And it's a black and white. It's kind of like a little arty sort of thing. It's got a mount. It's a grainy picture of like a mountain in the background. It could be like a like a drawing or something. It's got four silhouettes of hot air balloons in the distance. It's kind of cute. Sophisticated. Looks nice. Anyway, never mind. R. Anna Besson on flute. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this album is because of two of the soloists in this group. One of them is Anna Besson on the flute, who I've heard before. The other one is the harpsichordist Jean Rondeau. Now, we did um, his latest album on a recent podcast, um, and it's not coming to mind what it is now. Oh, okay, I got, I'll have to look that up. But um, which I, I I'm pretty um, mesmerized by his playing. He's got this really sort of almost aristocratic sound and you know great clarity I, I like his um his approach and his whole kind of take on the music he's played and um so he i remember he did a scarlatti recording two years ago and then the most recent one is the one we did and i'm i don't remember what it was now unbelievable i think it was a, it might have been a mixed uh variety and the other two uh soloists are and i can't uh, i'm kind of looking at this guy's name louis it's c-r-e-a-c Apostrophe H. Yeah, I have no a, idea a weird how to one. say that. Yeah, I should have looked that up. I don't know, but it's I was going to say Kreish or Kresh, but that apostrophe H kind of is messing me up. He's on the viola. Anna Besson plays the flute, by the way, and Robin Faro is the viola da gamba, so we get a little Baroque action going there. By the way, this flute is a um, – it's not a transverse flute. It's one of those um, wooden flutes that – you know, it's like a recorder, basically. Right. Um that, that we're hearing on this album and a very appealing sound for me. Oh, the, Some um, wooden instruments sounds very woody. The yeah. uh, rondo we did was uh, Melancholy Grace. Oh, yeah. Um, that's episode, uh, let's see here, episode 20, if you want to check it out. And that was on the Arato label. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's where, on, when uh, he uses a... Uh, a uh, virginal and the 18th century harpsichord, uh, right? And it's a very, uh, it's a varied program, right? It was right. just various things. That's why, okay, I couldn't remember it. All right, well, um, these particular works: flute, viola, viola da gamba, and harpsichord. Now, the viola da gamba and the harpsichord are going to be the uh, continuo, sort of like the filling in of the harmony that the um, soloists, in this case the flute, and the viola play over. One thing you want to think about here is that when a composer uses the viola as a solo instrument instead of the violin, you're going to get a really unique sound. It's got a throatier, deeper, darker timbre to it. And uh, that is indeed the case here. So you have this kind of, it, there's, there's something richer about the viola. It's not as athletic an instrument, but it's sort of... um. It's it's got a rich richer tone to it. So when you hear it like up top, you know, as a soloist, it's sort of um, you know, really unique. Um, what this kind of reminded me of is that uh, Debussy used the viola with the flute in his 
famous sonata for flute, viol, and harp. A really great piece. If you haven't heard it, you should hear. It's really beautiful. And a little sad, as the viola tends to be. All right, well, this program... Um, now, one of the things that we both love about Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach is his sense of humor. He's got these um, uh, this way of sort of abruptly changing the harmony, you know, and you're like, whoa, what just happened? You know, and you kind of feel like you want to go back and kind of listen to it because you didn't, you didn't hear it coming. He doesn't really set up a lot of his changes. He'll just kind of go into them. And he'll often like uh, slam on the brakes and the rhythm and there'll be these sudden stops and then like about faces or detours in the the direction that the piece is going in. And we kind of judge the um, the the uh, performers by whether they have enough of a sense to like kind of pull these elements out or if they're just going to play over them. So some do. They just kind of want to just play the music like it's just, you know, it's like it doesn't have all these like little jokes in it. And I think that's, I personally think that's a mistake. I would like to hear the humorous elements. Here we have a third approach that I really didn't see coming at all. This is a pretty dark sounding album. I was kind of a little surprised by this. I got the feeling that this is, um, as mm. it is his later works, reading about it, that the, these works are of a different nature. I found them to be, um, you know, focused on lyric, the lyrical nature and sensitivity of um, the compositions. The the melodic uh, parts are really beautiful and well developed, yeah. but I don't find the uh, sort of uh, playfulness and cheekiness in you know a lot of his other works and in the harpsichord uh, pieces and other things we've listened to. Um, well, so, there are those harmonic kind of like sudden detours yeah. and, and a few like, but the the ensemble doesn't really make a no. lot of them. They don't just no. play over them. They're where they're there. But, uh, you know, they, they sort of, um, I don't know if I want to say play them down, but they sort of interpret them differently. Let's mm. just say, you know, it's kind of, they're going after something else here. Yeah. I, I just keep, and my notes are filled with like kind of, Words like sensitivity and yeah, um, mine too. Yeah, something uh, like, like that. that. Yeah, so and uh, intricacy. Um, yeah, uh, different approach and maybe um, also the period and uh, just the nature of the compositions. Um, they're different. Yeah, right. Anyway, it's three quartets. The the last three he wrote, and uh, they're bookended by slow movements from earlier piano works or keyboard works um the first um track sonata in a major is um from uh, a work called prussian sonata number no. six that's the adagio movement the middle movement i think they're all three movements long but i'm not really sure about that and this has like a a heightened uh, what, do, what does that mean <laughs> heightened it, it just feels like elevated or something it's like more a little larger than life i think emotional kind of theatricality to it that's like it's showy okay it wants to theatricality meaning like the emotions are a little overblown so that the audience is gonna you know pick mm. them up um we hear that um okay yeah besson is playing a recorder in this case the wooden flute of the time it's a lyrical movement very sad, a little sad it's got a little sadness to it um interpreting the way the whole set of timbre strikes the ear this is one of the things that i think they wanted to give you this chance for you to hear like what this ensemble is going to sound like um this combination of instruments it's really thick kind of dark a little heavy sounding mm -hmm. um 
Um, the music, it sounds like a Baroque ensemble because of the viola da gamba and the harpsichord, but the music doesn't sound Baroque. It's a, it's a pretty tranquil way to begin the album. It doesn't quite sound classical either, but the classical era would be Mozart and Haydn's period. And Bach, he, he lived, yeah, this is hard to, he was pretty much in the classical era. He, he didn't really like the gallant style, which was kind of right. empty, kind of, but he wasn't quite classical either. So he was really his own person, C.P.E. Bach. And I think that's something else we like about him. He, he didn't like yeah. reach the peak that Mozart reached, but um, still, the, um, he, I think he, yeah. The Presto notes had something about that, uh, um, that, um, you know, he had a, a post um, uh, at this time in his later years uh, under King Frederick II, who was seeking to promote the gallant style. But um, C.P. Bach himself was, um, you know, pushing towards something else. And uh, right. he wanted this kind of more emotional and exploratory uh, type of expression that was, you know, Going to come later, and uh, yeah, I, th I think Frederick the Great would have been a little earlier in his career than these than these works. I think he was yeah. in Hamburg towards and the end. So yeah. what I mean is, when he was in the later stages, perhaps you know this is kind of the thing that he had been moving toward, yeah. uh, wanting to do as his kind of expression, uh, because they're uh, they're kind of we say they're emotional. Uh, they're not lacking in any sort of development or part writing. They're they're really quite intricate, and um, uh, the melodies are all unique and um, yeah. enjoyable right away. But then the harmonic lines and the counterpoints and things are also you know equally um, interesting. So you, you can get multiple listens. It takes multiple listens to actually follow yeah. everything that's going on I, here. I was thinking that too. Um, I was but, like, when I was listening to it, I'm like, oh, I'm not really getting this. I got to hear this again. You but know? I didn't get like the feeling of like in a lot of the, the, his other works that I listened to where he'd be winking at me like, didn't see right. that coming, did you? No, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was just kind of like following through and saying, wow, this is really pretty uh, or this yeah. is uh, a little bit, you know, almost more serious than I usually get from... Uh, CPA right. Buck. So I, I found them, yeah, just a little different in character, but yeah, really interesting and um, and uh, well constructed. Right. So we get the, um, you know, the, we 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 kind of understand this whole sound world after um, the first um, track, and then we get into the quartets themselves. Okay, the first one is a quartet for piano, flute, and viola, although. Uh, piano or harpsichord is not specified. It could be either. Here we hear a harpsichord, of course, Jean Rondeau playing. In A minor, Watquo 93, Watquo WQ. This is like the uh, way his, uh, one of the ways that CPE Bach's works are organized. I, I don't know who the scholar is here. Um, but um, this, um, I thought, takes the listener by surprise it's 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 got a lot of changes of direction and sudden breaks in the first movement it's got a lot of stark contrast in the second movement and a bit of wit in the third movement yeah it's more animated now in the first, yeah in the first movement it's on, labeled andantino i've sweared i've heard this melody played more chirpily before but i couldn't figure out where but i i'm pretty sure i've heard these works uh played elsewhere in a like a more cheerful way um here the tempo is slower than I remember, and the entire palette is darker, probably due to the harpsichord and the tempo. They take a pretty slow tempo here. I don't think this ensemble can play faster than this, although I find out later that they can, because the timbres they're using are kind of heavy, and they'd smudge at mm. this um, 
at this, uh, you know, sort of with the, with the harmonies being used here. That's the way I felt anyway. Um, as it is, they get a very clear sound. No worries there. And the harmonic sense is clear to the ear. I just want to say the playing on this this record is just great all the way through. Um, I just want to talk about the music a little bit and the approach. So no no worries. You're in secure hands with these musicians. They, they sound fantastic. Um, once I got used to this, the sound, I turned, tuned into the harmony, uh, which is where most of the action is in um, CPE Bach, I think. And uh, there are numerous false or open cadences, as we expect from him. It's part of his musical language. A sudden changes of direction, interrupted rhythms, um, characteristic of him, but they're not quite used for the kind of comic or a stunt, you know, shock effect that, uh, or we don't get those effects from this particular um, performance. Okay, Largo and Sostenuto's second movement, um, weighty timbre again, and again, pretty compelling harmonic detours. Uh, changes of character are fairly subtle. Um, they're there, but you have to really listen to hear them. It's a pretty melody, too. And the third movement, Allegro Assai. Uh, this one begins by skipping along, although at a fairly slow tempo. Uh, there's athleticism in this movement that isn't really highlighted. I mean, if you're really listening, you say, oh, this sounds kind of hard to play, but... Um, you don't really notice it. It's un it's understated by this ensemble, and I really appreciate that. They want you to hear the the music and not them, basically. Um, the the ensemble goes more for the wit, which is easier to spot at this speed. Otherwise, it would just uh, fly by if it was really really fast. And you wouldn't really catch it. You, the you know the musicians would have to actually underline it, and they don't do that here. There are hairpin changes of idea or rhythm that you wouldn't expect if you weren't familiar with the music of uh, the Baroque or Gallant period. Uh, so, if you know the Baroque, the way the Baroque is constantly moving, these, these pieces are constantly moving, so when Bach slams on the brakes, it's kind of like a shock. It just wasn't done back then. Um, um, one of Bach's characteristic techniques, this is CPE Bach, arriving at a pause and then completely changing direction unexpectedly uh, is heard throughout this movement. So, you can hear a lot of that here. So, this is a satisfying piece with the understanding that there are other possible interpretations of this work. Okay, this is like a really rather unique one, a very interesting one too, that repays um, additional listenings. This is, um, I, I actually, the first time I heard this, I'm like, yeah, there's a lot in here I'm not hearing. I noticed that right away. There's a lot of detail. All right, we get uh, Quartet in D minor, Watt Quo 94. This one's more serene than the first quartet. It starts rather earnestly, darkish tone again. The accompaniment sounds heavy. But the articulation is uh, fantastic throughout this first movement. Um, this could have been taken at a more upbeat tempo, but the ensemble is after something else here. They're really exploiting the darker tones of the viola, and they want to you know, kind of give you that darker tone. Um, the second movement is labeled in German, which is kind of unusual uh, for CPE. Sehr langsam und ausgehalten. Well, I don't know that it's unusual for him, but uh, it's unusual for the period. It was really Beethoven that really brought that into into being, um, because usually you'd have an Italian marking. Uh, there's no pause between uh, this movement and the first movement, another unusual feature of this work. Uh, the whole feel just suddenly changes. You're in the first movement, and then bang, you're in the second movement, and everything sounds different. It's jarring and unexpected, and very cool, if I may so so myself. I really I was like, whoa, it made me smile. It's got a slower tempo, art harmonic changes, as we expect from this composer, especially between the first statement of the theme and the second. They're very different 
from each other. The direction seems to have abruptly changed. You've got to be on your toes when listening to CPE Bach. I think I've said that a million times already. All right, third movement, Allegro di Molto. This is a rondo. It starts uh, cheerfully enough, given the slowish tempos, and more or less stays that way. Uh, the notes say there's great passion in this movement, but I'd say there's a kind of happiness or serenity to it. So I think when they say passion, maybe they're thinking, you know, you know, passionate happiness. I don't know. Could be. Giddiness, maybe. Okay. The, the last, the third and last of these quartets, uh, G major, what quote, 95. I should just say WQ so people know what I'm talking about. Starts with great passion. There are a lot of trills in the theme. Mm. <laughs> the mournful adagio is like a keyboard concerto. And the third movement is the most virtuosic of all these works. So we save the fireworks for last. Yeah, Rondo gets a workout on this one. Yeah, so we get to really... And it's, it's this was this was the point where my I had to reassess everything I had heard because I was thinking, oh, they have like a, a heavy tone, so they don't want to play too fast because of the the... the possibility of the harmony smudging but then in the presto they're all light and uh they really go for it the allegretto first movement is kind of an odd downward screeching figure for the flute it's kind of <laughs> doesn't really sound like a theme at all but it's inst it's easy to remember because it's so weird uh reminiscent of a dog barking or a diving bird or you know <laughs> if you could just imagine what a diving bird would sound like if you, if it had a sound or some animal making a repeated noise it kind of the, the images I got of this are of an animal of some sort, you know, so it, it had that quality to me. Um, it's easy to identify because as it reappears, of course, because it's so unusual. Uh, the end of the exposition, which is the the beginning where all the themes are first heard or exposed, um, because it um, lowers onto the tonic chord. That usually doesn't happen. Uh, then there's a brief pause, and then the development section starts. You usually don't get like that pause and then like you start in the middle um, section. It usually just flows in. Well, actually, there's a stop, but there's like a whole pause here. It's, it was, it was mm. really odd to me. Uh, the rondo gets the shine in this movement. There's a lot of figuration. Oh, I'm sorry. Ron not the rondo. Jean Rondo, the <laughs> harpsichord player, gets the shine in this movement. There's a lot of figuration for him to play with his amazing sense of time. Uh, his his um, scales and his, his kind of like figuration is all very symmetrical it's very there's an equal space between each note it's really beautiful playing and it's clean clear attack i enjoyed the themes and the sense of fun in this movement the second adagio movement the harpsichord leads the way with expressive playing of the melodic material like we said it's sort of like a like a keyboard concerto he gets um the spotlight and then in the presto very surprising fast speeds in this very virtuosic movement the harpsichord has most of the exciting material Good for Jean Rondeau. There's enough space for all of the instruments to be heard, even at this tempo. I feel like the ensemble captures the excitement of uh, CPE's music here. And that's it for the uh, quartets. At the end, we get a track 11, another um, middle movement from an earlier keyboard work. This is from uh, WQ65, number 33, Andante con Tenerezza. And this reveals a personal aspect of Bach's experimentation. It's got a despairing minimalist theme, sort of an odd way to uh, end an album. And it's kind of a bummer after the thrilling, upbeat third movement of the previous quartet. Though, as with everything on this album, it's beautifully and atmospherically played. It's a touching sign-off 
to the piece at the end as the viola da gamba plays the last notes. Yeah, I enjoyed hearing the out. tempos. Yeah. Does it? Well, well he I fades mean, not out. A real the, the record fade, doesn't fade out. Yeah. Yeah, it just gets to the mm-hmm. viola da gamba and then that sort of gets a little bit uh, pianissimo. It had there, me wondering then, how the yeah. third movement would have sounded. Yeah, what's next after yeah. that? Yeah, and that's, that's how we uh, they leave us. Mm. So it's sort of an open-ended kind of uh, ending. I enjoyed hearing the timbres of these instruments throughout the album, and I think the three quartets are going to require some further listening, as I said, from me, so that they can completely register. Uh, the ensemble is putting a challenge to the listener and bringing out this quirky composer's more introspective side in these performances. Also, Jean Rondeau's sensitive and colorful harpsichord playing draws me in. He's unique... And I already had him on my radar, and I will continue to keep my eyes out for him. So this is recommended, but it's going to be, uh, it's not going to be like a, a relaxing listen. It's going to be one that draws you in mm. to its world. Yeah, introspective it is. Uh, a yeah. different side or a different interpretation, maybe both of CPE Box works. But they're lovely, the, uh, the uh, tonalities of the instruments. The timbres are really pretty. The playing's nice. It's uh, unhurried uh, with lots of expressiveness. And uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, yeah. It's going to be on my CPE Buck uh, favorite list for sure. I have to say that my, um, my, my kind of image of CPE Bach has changed because of this album. And I guess that's what you want yeah. to happen yeah. when you put out a, a record. You know, you, you want to kind of... Um, give people another way of thinking about this music. Yeah. So that was pretty interesting for me. Oh, by the way, if you are not familiar with Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach's music, an excellent place to start with would be with Andreas Steyer's um, recording of the, his six keyboard concertos from the early 2010s. I think it was probably around the year 2012 on Harmonia Mundi. It's a fantastic recording with all of the uh, pleasing elements that we've described in C.P. Bach and Staya has a good enough sense of humor to really bring out the, uh, the you know, the the idiosyncrasies yeah. and quirks in C.P.E.'s music. Well, that's interesting yeah. because uh, the theme of this week is uh, bass. Bases, yeah. I've, I think we've got a sub-theme, and that is the word that you just had pointed out, introspective. And, introspective, uh, if that's interesting. the introspective uh, C.P.E. Bach... The next uh, choice is also a rather yeah, monk-like is, introspection as well. well he, this should have been on the Guitar Monks episode because this yeah, is yeah, kind of monk-like. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, see, yeah, we, were just, we, were, we were ahead of the curve as usual. We, uh, yeah, you, yeah. Well, you, you had put in the three uh, guitar records, and I, I, the next day after I had chosen the classical ones, I was like, ah, oh, you know, it's, right. I should have changed that. But anyway, this was uh, Sean Sheba, who is a... Um, I think he, I don't want to say this. I don't want to get the wrong one. I think he's Scottish. Scottish, um, yes. Yeah, a uh, yes. guitarist and a, a real kind of star in the making. He's a really fantastic, very sensitive player. He's very young. I think he's in his 20s. And uh, he's a handsome guy, too. So he's got all the makings of being like a real um, sort of um, star in in classical guitar world and the classical world in general. His new album is called Camino. It's on the Pentatone label. And one of the odd things about uh, the artwork on this album is uh, the theme of this, the artwork of this album is uh, Sheba shaving his head into a crew cut. Uh, there are all oh. kinds of pictures in the uh, CD book of him having his head shaved. And you see him on the front cover 
with his, you know, looking down with his kind of sweatshirt on. Were you giving him lessons on how to do that? I was not. I have a shaved head, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, it is gorgeous. You're going to see it one day if we ever get to YouTube. It's quite symmetrical. You'll just have to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, um, we haven't heard him on record in much beyond the Baroque up to this point. We did hear him on, he did a Steve Reich piece for, yeah. where he multi-tracked himself. That was pretty cool, actually. He's done actually. some like, stuff with electric guitars. and Yeah, he's, right. not, he's not conservative in his approach at all. Um, he's just very he's interesting. focused, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was looking forward to hearing this record, in fact, because it's uh, he's stepping out of the Baroque here. Because he did an English Baroque uh, disc and then he did a Bach one. Did a Bach I one, yeah. think this is his first one for the Pentatone label, which is a new deal mm-hmm. with him. He was on Delphian before this. Um, this was not disappointing at all. But I'll tell you what it was. It was very quiet. You might have to turn the volume up on your yep. stereo for this one. You have to really crank it up after the uh, first track and keep it there almost to the end to get to hear the subtleties of what's going on on this one. Not only that, yeah, but he's also playing quiet works, and we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. The first one, though, is uh, Manuel de Falla, Danza del Molinero from El Sombrero de Tres Picos, um, which is, a, I think, an opera or a ballet. I'm not really sure which one. Anyway, it's very expressive. It's got some of those big Spanish chords in it. And it's got an authentic Spanish sound to the rhythm. Now, remember I said he was Scottish. Usually Spanish guitarists do this best. But uh, he's got it. He's got that uh, that Spanish uh, sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it sounded authentic. It was nice to hear. Um, he has a lot of micro gradations in tone length and color that make his playing... Very expressive. It's just fantastic to listen to. Draws you way in, as does the relatively soft volume that he's recorded at or playing at. I can't really tell which. Um, It seems like he could put anything across. Um, There's a smooth hypnotic rhythm in the melody with the accompaniment. The second track, these are all like one movement. Well, actually, we do get to a big piece later on. But the second uh, track is Antonio Jose which is the professional name of uh, Antonio Jose Martinez Palacios, if you want to look him up. This is his uh, Pavana Triste. Pavana is a stately dance. It's kind of a slow, kind of sad dance. Um, It's the third movement of his sonata for guitar, and it was a piece I was unfamiliar with. It has a tender, quiet sound, and uh, it's more mysterious than sad. I liked it a lot, and now I want to hear the rest of the piece. I hate when they do that to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> buy more buy more records yeah you can buy more records but it's not going to be him playing them it's going to be somebody no. else you know I want to hear his interpretation anyway next comes one of my all time favorite composers Federico Mompo Spanish composer from the 20th century um, he uh, picked up a lot of um, the harmonic magic of uh, composers French composers like Debussy and Ravel and uh, he's got a really atmospheric sound, also very Spanish. This is his uh, Canso y Danza, number 10. These are all for piano solo. This one was arranged uh, for the guitar by Mompo himself. Uh, these I love these pieces so much on the piano, and man, they sound so different on the guitar. Mm. I almost didn't recognize this one. I was, kind of, you know, I was listening. I was like, I know, I know all of these. What is this? And then I, it finally kind of popped out the timbre makes it sound unfamiliar um very, again very sensitive shaping of the melody in the song part and measured rhythm 
gorgeous tone on the very high melodic notes when he plays those really high notes. It's, man, it's just this beautiful ringing, chiming sound almost. And the the dance movement, the second part, uh, lovely rhythm to this piece, and it also has a catchy melody. It sounds Baroque in Sheba's hands and on the guitar. Uh, so on the piano, it sounds very 20th century harmony with old... Um, you know, with old an old rhythm to it. And, and that's something I'm going to have to point out. He, in some of these arrangements, and Monpon made this one himself, he's leaving some notes in the harmony out so you don't get a lot of the, the real magic that you get like in the piano arrangements. A lot of these, about half of these are arrangements from piano works and the other half are written for guitar. Uh, the next uh, three pieces are an example of piano pieces arranged for guitar. Eric Satie's very famous Gymnopédie Number no. One. This is a very hypnotic piano piece. Um, in this one, Sheba phrases the melody like it's being sung, so it's kind of legato. Pianists usually make the melody sound more fragile, like it's kind of, you know, being kind of uncovered from a rock or being thawed out of ice. You don't get that from Sheba's playing. He plays it more warmly. Um, and he also plays it a little faster than pianists usually play this piece. It goes you know, by pretty quickly. What I notice is, um, well, of course, you're not going to get the uh, same level of sustain on a guitar uh, right. that you're going to get on a piano. But so he plays it faster to sort of get that continuity. But he's right. able to do something that you can't do on piano, which is, I wouldn't call it a, it's, yeah. it's not a true vibrato because it's too fast. But it's almost like a shimmer. It's like a right. microwaver of a shimmer that he gets in, you know, something in the touch of of the way that he plays it, um, and so it gives it this sort of vibrating character that mm. you don't get on the piano. You know, as you say, pianists play it slower and they let the notes hang a little bit more. Right. And he's got them connected, but you know, with the variance in his touch, it just gives this little extra kind of um, uh, sheen to the notes. And so it makes it really unique and quite different uh, to the ear than, you know, these, because everyone knows these pieces. Um, right. You know, everyone's heard them, but you'll you'll experience them differently uh, as he plays them here. Right. The next work is uh, Nocien Number no. 1. Now, Nocien, it has something to do with Chinese music, his idea of, um, I don't know where he got the idea from, but um, this, these are also short works, like the Gymnopodies, which is supposed to be kind of more like a Greek dance in his mind. Nocian Number no. 1 is another famous piano piece. And um, Shiba, I mentioned that, what you said about the shimmer, like uh, in, in, this, in my note on this one, because he could bend the notes and make the melody more expressive. Um, on the mm -hmm. piano, the bends are all appoggiaturas. They're played... Um, on the top note and then like, you know, as a quick uh, neighboring note. But um, Shiba doesn't do that. He actually bends the string and sort of brings it down to get that sound. Uh, it's nice in this version. And the other amazing thing about this, I've actually played this this piece and the Gymnopathy too. I played all of these. And um, the, the rhythms are asymmetrical. So the the right hand is kind of going off on these you know, sort of um, runs in varying rhythms while the left hand is like a rock. It's just playing these like three, dun, 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 you know? And um, 
you, you kind of have to kind of calibrate your hands to play it. He he's doing all of this with one hand basically because he's um he's playing the rhythm with his I guess with his thumb and he's and the melody with his his, his fingers. It's really amazing to me mm. <laughs> that he's done this. This is not a by any means a uh, a virtuosic piece, but on the guitar it sounds like it's a lot harder than it is on the piano. Yeah. I was pretty impressed by this. Nocien number three follows. This is track seven. And I had to strain to recognize this famous piece and its new timbre again. Um, and again, um, he gets a surprising amount of expression out of this very short. And I had previously thought, you know, not terribly expressive piece. It's really amazing. Next, Monpo again. Love him. Check him out. If you don't know the music of Federico Monpo, he did mostly miniatures. They're just beautiful. And they have a Spanish kind of tinge to a lot of them. This one is Kansoi Danza number six. Um, I don't know who arranged this one. It doesn't say um, who the arranger is. Um, so it, it could very well be Shiva himself. Um, this um, takes on a different profile on the guitar than it does on the piano. Uh, the Spanishness of this work is more appear- apparent here on the guitar than it is in the piano version. So I rather enjoyed that. And the danza, the dance movement of this, loses some of the rhythmic impact that it has on the piano in this performance. Uh, Shiba plays it more melodically than with the accented rhythm that, I he- that I've heard in the piano version. The middle section is played slower than in the piano versions, and Shiba sounds enraptured by the harmony, which is a very attractive element in Monpo's music in general. Um, it's very good. I think in this case I like the, the piano version better. Um, there's a really beautiful tone on the high harmonic at the end of the music, at the opening section. He plays this really high note, and man, it just rings out. It's just beautiful. Perfectly played and paced. Okay, next. Very famous work, piano work by Ravel. Arranged for guitar. Pavan pour une infante de funt. The uh, pavan for a dead princess. Uh, very familiar. I'm sure you've all heard it. A piano piece designed to sound like a guitar. It's, you know, so the... Um, the left hand is supposed to sound like a guitar strumming on the piano, and here it is on the guitar. But uh, the magical harmonies at the end of every section of the A theme come across better on the piano. Shiba actually doesn't seem to include them. He, he just does the, uh, the uh, melody and then suggests the harmony, sort of like I guess you would in a, a Bach piece. So you don't really get that real kind of mm. open sort of open chord magic that because uh, he has open fifths in the in the bass and it just on the piano and when you play those on the bass you hear all those fantastic sympathetic uh, harmonies and the guitar you just don't have those I actually don't think he he plays it I think he just kind of you know thumbs it down a little um, so I think this piece comes across better on the piano um, it's nice to hear on the guitar though I enjoyed the melody hearing the melody a lot it's a nice arrangement next we have a piece originally for the guitar by Manuel de Falla. This is actually the only work Falla, the uh, Spanish composer, wrote for the guitar. You would think that huh. uh, Spanish composer would be writing for the guitar all the time, but no. They were sick of it, I guess, yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe because everybody else was. Yeah. <laughs> Every other Spanish composer was. Um, this is a homenaya pour le tombeau de Claude Debussy. Okay, Debussy had died. And... Um, a tombo is sort of like a memorial work for a, a composer who had recently died. Um, this is kind of a quirky piece, really, and it comes mm-hmm. across well here. It sounds mysterious. 
like it's all rising from some nether world. And there's a nice Debussy quote near the end that Shiba accents from, uh, from the uh, Piano Prelude, Lust, not the Piano Prelude, I'm sorry. It's from the Estampe Suite, um, La Soirée dans Grenade, which is the second of the Estampe. Um, it's kind of, it's like this distant sort of fiesta going on. Really beautiful. Okay, the major work on this album is the uh, six-movement uh, Suite Compostelana by Mompo, uh, Federico Mompo again. Now, I said major, but these are six very short movements. They're under two minutes long, or about two minutes. Yeah, this is originally written for the guitar. I don't get to hear it too often, so I was thrilled to hear it here. Um, in the first movement, Preludio, we have figuration like rain. Shibe is always altering his tone to accentuate progress and change of texture. This gets more gorgeous as it goes on with echoing figuration that Shibe plays as decrescendos. Very beautiful. The second mov movement is a chorale. A chorale is sort of a, a, a chord harmony that you'd sing in church. So it has like sort of a religious quality to it. You want to keep that in mind. This has a harp-like chord-based melody, which we expect, it being called a chorale. Uh, again, really gorgeous gradation of volume and tone from Shiba. The third movement is uh, a kuna, uh, another sensitive melody with falling figuration in the A theme. There's a middle section to this one, extremely quiet, beautiful ending on the final tonic chord of this work. Fourth movement, recitativo. Recitativo means it's recited, it's spoken. Um, he gets a glowing tone in the opening melody of this, and there are some nice harmonies. It's an ABA structure, so the uh, opening part repeats at the end. Uh, this one comes across as rhetorical, it being a recitativo, and um, it sounds like the melodic ideas are inconclusive and questioning. It's open-ended at the end. Fifth movement, canción, a song, and it's got a melody, very satisfying after the previous movement, and it kind of it's almost folk-like the way it so it's it's in its completeness, very sensitively shaped and played. And uh, the sixth moon is a uh, muñeta, which I'm guessing is a dance, because it sounds like a dance with accents and circular, continuous melody, beautifully paced. And the last track is by Francis Poulenc, French composer, a saraband, okay, a slow dance to end the album. This work is unfamiliar to me, but it's introspective and memorable. Very sensitively played, as is the case throughout the album. Shibe's tone glows in this. By the time this album was over, I had this pleasant kind of shiver or tingle and sense of well-being. This move, this album just made me feel good. It put me like on a higher plane. Um, I look for recordings to do that. Um, they've been, I've, and though I've heard a lot of recordings that I've really enjoyed lately, they've it's, that's been a rare feeling that I've gotten. I guess because I, I haven't been drinking booze while I've been listening to them either. That <laughs> not usually enough, helps. anyway. Yeah, not enough, anyway, yeah. Um, this is a special album, I think. Um, the playing is so quiet and sensitive that you feel like you're being let in on a secret. So it kind of makes you feel like you're special, you know? You're special hmm. enough to uh, know the secret. Um, this is an excellent way to chill out in the evening. Um, listen to it, sit down with your favorite drink and listen to it and just just be elevated this is just beautiful probably one of my favorite recordings of the year yeah my uh, conclusion was uh, introspective and enticing Shibe draws you into a quiet world of subtleties you'll have to mm. turn it up and listen closely 
to hear the subtle touches and microdynamics. Um, yeah, so you want to put this on when you can really focus. Uh, go uh, turn off the fans and uh, unplug everything else so you can uh, really tune in, uh, especially or listen you know, on headphones. modern <laughs> pop music and things. Yeah, uh, everything has been uh, normalized and amplified up, you know, right up, you know, to almost distortion. And here you've got something where he's going to bring you down, you know, almost to the floor of the quiet sound uh, for most of these tracks. And uh, you'll have to uh, really focus in to hear all the things that he's got going on uh, at a much lower sound level. But they're really subtle and uh, the different uh, tone qualities and touches and interpretations are, you know, they're really nice. And especially since a lot of them are originally piano works uh, that you've probably heard on the piano, that sort of contrast uh, with what is possible and how he reinterprets them for the guitar makes it, you know, fun uh, to compare and uh, also to uh, point out, you know, new different things in the works for you. So, yeah, definitely a complete change of direction for him. And uh, I'm glad that he keeps taking chances and uh, doing new fresh things. So, yeah, a really nice listen. I really want to hear him play Rodrigo's Concierto de Aranjuez. I bet he'll be amazing. Oh, uh, yeah. He'll probably make us wait before he does something like that. Though. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just as well. He's very creative, though, in his yeah. programming. I really like it a lot. We haven't actually heard him with an orchestra yet. No, no. So maybe he'll do the... Uh, I'd like to hear him do the Christopher Rouse um, guitar concerto, too. That's a piece that needs to be recorded more. It's. I think it's only been recorded once so far mm. um, by Sharon Isbin. Right. And no one else has taken it up. It's a really good piece. I like it a lot. All right. From now on, we're all about that bass. All about the bass, baby. The third, <laughs> the third, um, the third choice, the third classical pick of the week is an album called "Back to Stockholm." Uh, there's a little, there's a little pun in the title. S T O C K H O M E. The so Stockholm, Sweden, is this bassist's um, home, and it's also the home of um, all of the composers on the album who have either been born there or made Stockholm their home during their career at one point of their career. The basis in question, and I'm really glad I went to the pronunciation guide for this one because I never would have gotten it right. Uh, Rick Stotein. That's how you say uh, it? Yeah, Stotein. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, I have like a phonetic spelling here. I should I should have listened to it one more time before doing this. It's like, anyway, I'm, cl I'm closer than I would have been otherwise. Let's just say <laughs> it that way. And he's got, and a few other musicians are on this too. He also has the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra conducted by James Gaffigan. This is on Beast Records and it is an SACD. If you have an SACD player, get ready to have uh, velvety sounds coming out of your speakers at that higher sampling rate. Yeah. This is a Plug great sounding album. Plug in the subwoofer if you've got it too. Yeah. Anyway, the, yeah, the subwoofer, of course, for the uh, double bass, those extra resonance. All right. The okay. So as I've mentioned, the album title comes from the fact that all of the composers at one point lived in, lived and worked in Stockholm, Sweden. Some of them were born there, uh, and the Beast label itself is uh, based in Stockholm. And Stotein, I should say Stockholm. Is that I what guess. it stands for? Based in Stockholm. Um. What do you mean? The BIS. Nah. Oh, maybe. I wonder. No, Beast is um. 
you know, it could very well. But uh, beast is what the French say when they want an encore. Oh, I wondered because so it's you know. It's I think like that's what they're yeah. all capital letters. So I wondered what it was. Yeah, that's interesting. It might be, yeah. huh? Maybe one day we'll talk to them about it. Yeah. But beast is the French when when they stand up at the end. They want an encore. They say beast, beast. Beast, okay, beast. So I think that's where they got it. But yeah, why would you call a well? Why not? Right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure that's used in in Europe. Okay, um, Stottein considers uh, St- Stockholm, Stockholm, I'll say it the English way, his second home. He's Dutch, okay? Um, um, and uh, Edward Tubin, the um, Estonian composer on this album, um, spent a lot of his life in Stockholm. He wrote the, the piece um, that represents him on this record there as well. Let's just uh, go through this. Um, the first... Um, Composer is uh, Brita Bistrom. Uh, she's Swedish, um, and she has the first work is called "A Walk to Schubert" for viola and double bass, and the uh, violist is uh, Malin Broman. I didn't look up the pronunciation of that. I hope I'm right. Now Bistrom has written a series of some twenty works entitled "Walks," scored for various ensembles. They're written with the idea that the listener is walking towards a specific work by the composer in the title. And include they all include short quotations from that work. They all have kind of a walking rhythm, which after a while, I have to say, I found very appealing. It was kind of... It was a nice uh, kind of slow walk. And don't forget the whistling. There's whistling too. Yeah. Three of these walks are for viola and double bass of these 20, and they were written as encores for the performance of her double concerto, Infinite Rooms, which we're going to hear on this album as well. Um, the three encores are works that were programmed after her double concerto at various concerts, and we're going to, and, um, we're going to hear all three of them on, the, on this um, album too. The first one, A Walk to Schubert, the one we hear right here, is heading towards Schubert's Symphony Number no. 5, a work I'm not terribly familiar with, I have to say. I know the later symphonies by him. Like eight and nine, basically. Okay. The other two are Walk to Bruckner and Walk to Strauss, Richard Strauss, not the the Waltz King. Um, she wants to give the listener the sense of a distant silhouette of a city through these works, as though the Schubert, Bruckner, and Strauss works were cities, and you're sort of approaching them. So first we hear Walk to Schubert, and then we go right to the Edward Tubin work. Tubin was, as I mentioned, was uh, born in Estonia. Um, he fled in 1944 when the Soviets reoccupied Estonia. It had been independent since 1920, and because uh, it was it was part of the Russian Empire before that when Tubin was born. Then it was independent, and then the Russians came back and said, "You know what? You're part of the Soviet Union now." Anyway, that had and that lasted until, of course, 1989. And now we've seen this whole reflowering of Estonian music since that time with Arvo Pärt and. Uh, other composers from that uh, that country. It's it's pretty, they're really at the vanguard. I feel of uh, contemporary composition there. Um, um, Tubin wound up in Stockholm and he spent the rest of his life there. So the Swedes Swedish people kind of think of him as one of their own uh, as far as music goes. Okay, so he's written this uh, concerto. Uh, for double bass and orchestra. Very unusual to have a double bass concerto. Not too many of those out there. Yeah, right. Although there's one I want to talk about after we finish this section. Okay. Uh, the sections uh, follow each other without a break. 
And this work was written for the Estonian double bass virtuoso Ludwig Jut, I hope I said his name right, J-U-H-T, who is a member of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And he had mm-hmm. visited Tubin in Sweden, and Tubin wrote this piece for him. Now, this work comes from, uh, did I write the year? 1948. So right after the war. It was kind of a rough time. Um, this was around the time you know, Shostakovich was already sort of composing. I don't know. I'm not really sure how. We, we all eventually heard Shostakovich's music coming from the Soviet Union. It was released, but um, there was the Soviet authorities would clamp down on music there occasionally, and I don't know how much of it got out in this period. So, I'm, But I have to say there are certain Shostakovich elements that appear in this work, and I'm not sure that he's heard Shostakovich's music or this was just in the air at the time. Aggressive rhythms, um, there's a snare drum too, which I always find to be a very mid-20th century thing. It's always interruptive and sort of authoritarian. It's, yeah, it's martial sort of, quality. And ironic abstract, too. Yeah. There's a lot of irony involved with its use as well. I found a lot of this work to be kind of have ironic elements in it. Okay, so the Allegro con moto, con moto, sorry, motion, moto, aggressive rhythm from strings in the opening, and the buzzing bass plays its melody. And I had to adjust to this. It was hard to, it was really odd to hear a bass in the solo role. You kind of want it to be a cello mm-hmm. when you, you know what yeah. I mean? Except it's a lot deeper. Okay, um, toward the middle of its register, it's playing here. Then an urgent marching section follows. So you've got to wonder, you know, war. This is like after the war, uh, the Soviets had taken over Estonia. So he may be thinking of that. Um, there, there are a lot of these sort of elements in music in this period. It fades away. The march section fades away in decrescendoing circular descending patterns. You're going to have to hear that to know what I mean. Um, a waltzing section follows. Mm-hmm. Um, waltzes at this point were always ironic. The waltz was already gone. It was like a dead civilization. People didn't waltz anymore. That was really a 19th century dance. Um, with the bass playing a lyrical melody, uh, it sounds like there's irony here to me, judging from the unglamorous comments from single instruments of the orchestra. There's like downward glissandos in like, I think the bassoon or maybe some brass instruments. And they always kind of sound sort of like rough to me, like they're they're kind of mean or something, you know? Um, Shostakovich and Mahler both use these sort of things a lot, you know, for ironic commentary. The movement eventually grows more triumphant at the end, and it's got a brass fanfare over snare drum and orchestra at the end, which the brass fanfare was kind of cool. Okay, this fades into the next section, Andante Sostenuto, which is very brief. It starts tentatively with the bass playing a, a kind of weepy melody. Um... It kind of comes across as sort of like a weeping giant sort of thing, like this this big hulking thing that should be powerful that's kind of like broken down, um, given this, the tone of the instrument. The bass is a big instrument, so you kind of get the idea that it's, it's, there's something embarrassing about seeing seeing something so big and noble, like kind of broken down like it is in this movement. The melody rather spectacularly goes down into the bass's lower range, which is very cool and throaty cool. I liked it a lot. The third movement, Tempo Primo. Remember, there's no interruption between these movements. This one has a more chipper accompaniment from the winds and accompanying the bass's short phrases. The bass starts outlining a march rhythm and the orchestra follows. It builds in volume and suddenly stops. Uh, The bass gets a cadenza here, so solo part without the orchestra. 
uh, very, which is very heartfelt. It plays a trudging rhythm in the middle register as it develops. This is a long cadenza, about yeah, four minutes. <laughs> yeah, it just goes on for a long time. And uh, its last notes are these wonderful harmonics, which yeah. you don't really get to hear enough on the bass. He does these really um, nice alternating uh, pick and bow figurations. Yeah. And uh, it gets really low and it it like resonates. Your floorboards will sort of rise up <laughs> when he does that. Uh, it's a pretty cool extended bass feature. Yeah, have your uh, have your subwoofer on for that effect. All right, fourth movement, Allegro non troppo poco marciale. So that gives away the game right there. Marciale means martial or like, you know, warlike or march-like. The orchestra re-enters, a clarinet drives the new rhythm, strings pick it up, and uh, this rhythm drives the whole movement. The bass solos in its higher register, and it sounds anxious. Uh, towards the end, it climbs high in its range, then glissandos down, which is a really nice effect on the bass, being that it's such a low-frequency instrument. I thought the work ended fairly positively, uh, but the presence of the snare drum communicates hostile forces to me. It's an interesting piece, very much of its time. Um, it, it's not... The thing is, it's, it's com- I think it's commenting on its time, and I think it was an anxious period. So we get a lot of that irony and a lot of these these sort of martial elements in this work. Okay. Next we go to Britta Bistrom again. Um, by the way, I should mention, she's um, Swedish, born in Stockholm in 1977. So she's pretty young. She's, she's, um, she's a younger member of our generation, I guess we could say. Hmm. Right? She, she's 44. Uh, yeah, she's young. Yeah, she's 12 years younger than me. Okay, this one is A Walk to Bruckner, written in 2017. So she's a contemporary composer, very much so. And I wanted to, I needed to point that out because uh, I want to get a lot of contemporary composers on the Adult Music Podcast because we should be listening to them. Uh, classical music is very much alive, although only those of us or who are in the secret club are listening to them and uh, being excited by their work. Uh, so this one quotes Bruckner's Third Symphony, another one that I'm not terribly familiar with. This one features Malin Broman on viola again. And this has some nice swooping glissandi from both soloists. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed this one. There's orchestral whistling in this one toward the end. Yep. All right, whistles. next. Yeah, this is probably the centerpiece of this album by Britta Bistram. Her work, Infinite Rooms, which I mentioned, um, the walk works were kind of written to take the listener away from this and into what the next work on the program was going to be. All right. And this is the work that was the centerpiece there. This is a double concerto for violin slash viola. So I guess the soloist is playing both, mm-hmm. though not at the same time, obviously. Double bass and orchestra. So Malin Broman, again, is the violin and viola player. And uh, the Vesteros Sinfonietta is um, the uh, group, uh, the ensemble playing here. It's conducted by Simon Crawford Phillips. Um, and, of course, um, Stotein is the uh, double bass player. Um, this was inspired – this is kind of interesting. It was inspired by the mirror installations by the Japanese artist Yayoi Kusama. Now, you're familiar with her, right? You, you've seen her uh, – she she did that pumpkin that everybody yeah, posts on I've Facebook. Seen some of it. I can't really <laughs> yeah. claim to. She, she's an odd bird, much about it. basically. Yeah. She's got uh, that 
you know, pink hair and or red hair yeah. or whatever, you know. Kind of uh, look, her art looks like what this piece sounds like to me, I guess. Yeah. Kind <laughs> of. This what I was this I wasn't so keen on this one, yeah. Oh, I liked it. I, okay. okay, well, we'll get into that. Anyway, let's see. I liked this work. I thought it was kind of interesting. It was unique. I have to say that. Um, so anyway, in the mirror installations by Kusama, Yoyo Kusama, a small object is infinitely replicated through the use of mirrors. And in this piece, a simple motif is rendered complex by replication. So almost like it's being exposed to mirrors if it was a visual thing. This work has seven movements. The first six... And this is going to help you a lot because this is going to be a hard work for me to describe. The first six focus first on the soloist, and then they're all followed by an interlude that acts as an orchestral infinity room. So the whole orchestra picks up what the soloists were playing and sort of amplify it into the mirrored room, I guess. Um, so you can think of it like that. Um, in each movement, one detail is presented, which is then brought into and repeated in the following infinity room. Okay, and she labels these. Um, let's just go through the movements. Um, oh, by the way, the soloists mirror each other too. And this is kind of a fun thing to listen for. I'm sure this happened a lot more often than I registered. The violin and viola cast these long double bass shadows. And the double bass casts short violin shadows. So they're picking up the themes of each other, but reflecting them as the as though they were kind of actual things or shadows. This work is really based on visual um, imagery, I think. Um, the way this all plays out is kind of hard to describe. Um, there are a lot of quick changes of texture and figures, and which kind of kept me interested. You need to hear this to really understand it, but let's start. The movements are all unnamed. They're just one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Um, the first uh, movement starts with metallic percussion and glissandi from both uh, violin and bass. It's fairly challenging, but not hard to follow or enjoy, even. It's intellectually satisfying, I thought. You can hear the mirroring of instruments in the glissandi they both play. Okay, so you can hear, like, the uh, double bass will play a glissando, and the um, the violin will do a long glissando, as though it's its long shadow, like that. Okay, and then uh, the room of figures is heard. It sounds urgent. This particular movement, the theme is figuration. So you're going to hear a lot of figuration in the orchestral interlude. We get to the second movement. The orchestra fades. Both instruments play pizzicato, so they're plucking the strings in complementary interlocking rhythm. I love this effect. Um, Kevin Volans used to do this a lot. I think he still does. Um, eventually, the viola starts a brief legato line accompanied by winds in the orchestra. Another brief pizzicato episode follows. Then the violin plays high in its range. Long-held toads from the violin provide occasional contrast. Uh, the orchestral interlude is, is pizzicato, too, so they pick that up and kind of mirror it. Towards the end, the bass plays a few longer tones. Third movement, the violin starts with brief tossed-off tone notes, and the orchestra whistles as accompaniment. This uh, composer seems to like uh, whistling. It, it, it appears in a lot of her music, I guess. There are yeah. quick changes of figuration. Violin and bass shadow each other with a brief swirling figuration here. And the interlude starts with the orchestra whistling the theme. This is the whistling movement. It's um, the mirrored room is whistling. The fourth movement, the viola starts a pattern that the violin answers. Did I say that right? Because it's the same soloist. I'm not sure. I'd have to hear it again. <laughs> anyway, maybe the bass answers it. This turns into a rhythmically propulsive figure. The orchestra plays sustained, haunting, 
harmonies that sound like a set of ocarinas. So, so it kind of sounds like untuned wind instruments. While the solo is glissando downward, the quick staccato interlude begins. So this one is staccato, not the same as pizzicato. It's just short note lengths. It sounds like a. This one sounded to me like a room of large birds flapping their wings. Fifth movement. Uh, I think it's the violin. It sounds bright to my ears. Plays a melody. The orchestra turns it into a chorale. So that's going to be the the chords like that we would sing in church. So it's got like a religious quality to it. The movement is somber. Um, the bass solos as an instrument in the orchestra swoops up and down. I can't really tell what that instrument is. Uh, the chorale interlude begins fairly early. It sounds kind of uplifting to me. This is the whole orchestra playing. Now they're playing chords. And the bass plays a folk-like swooping figure high in its register while the violin plays pizzicato. So it's kind of a nice uh, combination of um, timbres. Okay, sixth movement. Short, aggressive, repeating phrases from the orchestra. The orchestration here is pretty compelling. Lots of hitting the strings with the bow for percussive effect. At the end, the bass is on its bottom note, and the violin is screeching out a top note. And the combination room, the room of mirrors, follows, and the whole orchestra plays together as if everything in the entire piece has been put together now. And the concluding seventh movement, which isn't going to have an interlude, obviously, this starts with the bass and violin playing a rushing, rushing rhythm pizzicato. The bass plays lyrically as the wind section plays some discordant yet crystalline harmonies, and the work ends suddenly on a pizzicato note in the viola. It's just all of a sudden. And uh, I think that's a work uh, worth hearing. Anyway, next we have, uh, again, Britta Bistrom, the last time we'll hear from her on this album, A Walk to Strauss. That's Richard Strauss, the orchestral composer. Uh, this quote's from Strauss's Don Quixote. And um, it's played the same in all the walking pieces we've heard it. This uh, walking rhythm um, it has a few themes from Don Quixote in it. Mysterious sounding work. Next, we get to the single movement work by Jesper Nordin, who is Swedish, born in 1971. Another contemporary of ours, I guess, in Stockholm. This is a trio for violin, double bass, and piano. This is a written in, uh, well... It's a 2009 arrangement of the same composer's double concerto for violin, cello, and orchestra. So instead of the cello, we're hearing the double bass here. Um, the material is based on a Swedish folk tune, uh, Nordin says, <laughs> a wedding march from the north of Sweden. And Nordin has used this in several of his pieces. This tune has been treated in various ways through a computer. He doesn't tell us how, but uh, you can kind of tell because um, it's not really identifiable as a melody at all in <laughs> some of this, this piece. Uh, the clearest traces of folk music in the piece are drones and quarter tones. So... This is going to be a bit of a challenge to listen to, although it's not its not like ear-splittingly terrible. It's actually kind of... It's a lot of droning, um, so tones happening. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very listenable. Amorphous uh, yeah. shifting that's going on. Right. It's got an interesting opening with long, sustained, swooping violin lines and percussive piano accompaniment. By the way, I should mention the uh, pianist on this is... The conductor of the previous of the uh, previous works of Simon Crawford Phillips. Um, um, this work is mostly atmospheric. Uh, the bass's entry is especially interesting. It's got an alien sound to it. It adds a lot of depth, 
And I have to say the traces of folk music would be unidentifiable if the composer hadn't mentioned they were there. (laughs) The the pianist does a lot of trilling in the accompaniment. He plays just a lot of trills. The violin statements are dramatic and stark. And the first section ends with a fade. Now, I should mention, this is all one track, but the work seems to me to be divided into two or three sections, depending on how you want to count them. There's a big space um, at about the five five minute, 12 second mark, or the five minute mark. There's uh, some silence indicating that we're starting a new section, I would guess. All right. Once we get to the second section at around the five minute mark, a solo bass emerges. The pianist sounds like he's stroking the strings inside the piano, but actually, I don't think he is. I think it's he might be doing that, and it's been altered by a computer. It sounded like an electronic sound of someone caressing the um, inside of the piano. I'm not sure that's what it is, but that's what it how it registered to my ear. This rather static, sparse-sounding section goes on for a bit. From the droning sounds of the bass, and especially the violin, we do get a sense of a folk melody, but it's been rendered abstract. This piece sounds rather like an experiment in sound. It stays static to the end. Um, it ends without resolution on an unresolved piano note. So, I don't know what to tell you about, <laughs> about this piece. It's, it's more about the sound it makes. All right. We end this, this album with a work by Karin, Karin Malerf, Malmler Forschling. Swedish composer, 1916 to 2005. So she's a 20th century composer. It's called In Memoriam, and it was written in 1999 for solo soprano. It's a vocalese, and transcribed for the double bass here by Stotin himself. Stotin himself, sorry. Nice to hear the bass alone, finally. And Stotin's playing is very warm. He manages an expressive, sighing tone. Um, There's some slight swoops upward. And this seems to be characteristic of Swedish art music in, a, in the current era. Um, Showtime plays this with magnetic concentration throughout its brief 2 minutes and 20 seconds. It's a somber ending point for this album as a whole. So, icy climbs come across in these pieces, and they attract the intellect more than the emotions. Um, I enjoyed uh, Bistrom's Very Creative Infinite Rooms the most of all the works on this album. That's what I have to say about it. Yeah, that one... I couldn't really warm up to uh, so much. Mm. I, I did like the walks a lot. Um, That's because it's icy. It's got those icy climbs. Yeah, but I like the tubing <laughs> one a lot. And uh, yeah. well, regardless of the material, uh, I enjoyed the uh, bass focus. And uh, yeah, the when he did get a um, a spot to shine lyrically, I thought that he could really bring out the sort of singing nature of the bass, but not only that, uh, you know, some other sort of contrasting, like in that cadenza with the um, the plucking and uh, bowed sections together, uh, was really nice too. And the in the um, which one was it? Let's see here. In the infinite rooms, the one that I did enjoy uh, most for the bass effects was uh, the sixth one, uh, which starts out kind of raucous, but then uh, uh, he gets these extremely low bass tones. He may even be (laughs) tuning the strings down for that. And they they reminded me of like whale calls. You know, they're so low. (laughs) It's like, 
yeah. And then, yeah, yeah they're, they're really almost like uh, subsonic kind of uh, uh, tones that we don't get to hear in, in most music. Uh, so, um, yeah, and then in, in the last, I, I guess in the sixth and going into the seventh, the uh, bass has some kind of uh, more melodic kind of things too. So overall, it's a nice feature for the bass, uh, which you don't get to hear you know, in a solo kind of a setting and as the feature uh, and um, and set off against the viola in a lot of places too. It's a kind of intriguing uh, combination as they trade off with the different uh, timbres and then a uh, combination of, you know, plucking and bowing techniques. Uh, so I, it held my interest uh, through it and I was, uh, yeah, kind of happy to have a bass-focused thing with... Uh, modern classical music yeah you know what i'd really like to hear this guy play there's a ba double bass concerto by one of our favorite composers Enu Johani Rautavara the Finnish composer Ooh. who uh, he he died uh, a few years ago um, it's called Angel of Dusk so it's one of his angel works he did about three or four of those and we know of course the 7th Symphony Angel of Light right. which I'm also going to recommend to the listeners it's really beautiful and it's a Angel of Dusk, it's a darker work, of course. Um, the Angel of Dusk is a kind of a scary angel. And uh, it's got a great double bass solo. I'd love to hear this guy take that on. It'd be great to have a new recording of that. There's, I think there's only one in existence now, also on the Beast label. But that would be great. Yeah, let's hear it. Get to okay. it. Okay. <laughs> so we're all about that bass. Here we go. So you picked this bass one, and then I've had uh, so many jazz recordings that I want to talk about. I've kind of got them grouped together uh, on themes, and I just happened to have three that had come out recently that uh, were all uh, recordings where the leader, uh, the main name attached to the recording, was the bass player. And so I right. said, all right, it's time to set these into the podcast. And uh, so... Bases loaded. The first on first base in the jazz category is uh, something <laughs> new and different. Uh, you know what? The other thing I've I wanted to do since we started out is uh, you know jazz is the American music. Uh, some people say it's America's classical music. Uh, we can talk about it in different ways, but I wanted to make it as international as possible and uh, check out jazz that's happening around the world. And so here, uh, we've got something new. Uh, well, we have uh, spent a lot of time looking at uh, European recordings, uh, Italy, France, uh, Scandinavian countries, and we have seen uh, uh, Israeli pianist uh, who's active in New York now. But right now, we're going to go to the Tel Aviv jazz scene, uh, hmm. with a happening bass player there, uh, Shea Hazan and his quintet. And their new release called Nuff Headlines, N-U-F-F, hmm. on the Chant Records label. So Hazan is uh, on the supposedly vibrant Tel Aviv jazz scene. That sounds interesting. If you ever get over there, I'd like to check that out. Uh, and here, he's the leader on bass with his quintet, and uh, so he's got uh, two horns there, two, uh, Lady Trumpeter, uh, Tel Avraham, and uh, Yal Netzer on saxophone. 
and on piano, Milton Mikhaili and Chaim Peskov on drums. And the roots of his music are really uh, diversified. Uh, he's got, uh, you'll, you'll hear on this album, a uh, focus on sort of uh, Middle Eastern kind of modal uh, tones. Uh, so hmm. it's very much a modal jazz, but he also brings in uh, the instrument uh, called gimbri, which is a, a kind of three-string uh, skin-covered bass lute. Uh, I, I guess it's sub-Saharan instrument originally, but it, it came to uh, Morocco and was used in the music there and their uh, Nawa music. So he uses that. But he's also got some kind of soul jazz uh, and 60s Chicago free jazz uh, influence too. So there's a lot of influences in here, but you'll get a kind of... Um, Middle Eastern flavor too. Uh, and uh, in addition to the Gimbri, uh, we're also going to hear um, uh, Netzer, who plays the sax player on the Zerna, which is a really interesting sounding a reed instrument too. Um, so you know, a, a local color to the jazz here. And it all starts out with uh, the first track, Beber's cha-cha, and it is not a cha-cha <laughs> at all. It sounds more like a 60s soul uh, jazz uh, piece, uh, which is built over just this really uh, kind of a hypnotic three chord that's like a D minor 7, E minor 7, A minor 7 vamp that repeats mm. throughout the piece with an occasional dissonant outside harmony chord uh, thrown in for color but it's you know and it's set to this yeah it's got kind of a suggestion of a latin rhythm in the drums i thought a little bit to it although not Not a cha-cha though Um, it's not a cha-cha anyway uh yeah it draws you in it's a really hypnotic piece with really uh kind of yearning horn lines uh and those uh, horn lines draw you right into a uh, piano solo to begin with and then um Next, we get Netzer on sax, and uh, he plays a very uh, Pharaoh Sanders uh, type of inspired <laughs> angsty tenor solo with yelps uh, that uh, continue right into the return of the horn lines and a nice slowed down ending. Uh, so it's a really cool, infectious start to the album. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. That was cool. Uh, I assume that's um, Hazan's original composition. Uh, next, we get a uh, composition by Netzer called uh, Evening Puja. Uh, and this um, has these continual kind of bass bowing and horn lines that sneak in and out. Uh, there are other background sounds in the left channel. If you listen with headphones, you hear them. I'm not sure if they're intentional or if it's a noisy <laughs> environment, a live <laughs> recording. I don't really know. Um, they do have a, um, if you look on YouTube, it, it's not his own channel, which has some short pro- promotional uh, videos, but there is a a sort of small live studio date that includes a lot of these tracks uh, with also a live audience. But there's some sounds going on there. Uh, <laughs> sounds like someone's moving chairs around the studio. I'm not sure. Um, about midway through, uh, an ostinato bass line develops, and he does like the ostinato bass line. Yes, I was, I was going to say yeah. that. There, it's yeah. on every track. On every track, he gets the <laughs> groove going. And uh, But uh, here, too, there's another kind of... Uh, Pharaoh Sanders uh, inspired tenor solo from Netzer. It's really cool. Uh, the bass line gets more rhythmic and as it builds and then uh, Peskov on the drums lays down some really cool heavy beats. The horns join in again, to, again together and uh, when it fades out there's kind of this weird uh, sitar-like uh, 
kind of uh, fret noise in the right. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, yeah, a lot of intriguing sounds on this album. Yeah, uh, three vertigo uh, starts out with um, kind of a reverby effect on the piano opening. Uh, must be just like a studio type thing. A rubato ballad theme uh, comes out for Abraham's trumpet. And uh, she's got a really fat, warm sound uh, in the lower register. Uh, and a slow 6-8 beat develops uh, with kind of uh, interesting percussion accents. Uh, the piano adds weighty, chiming chords. And the volume builds with heavier drumming that pushes uh, Abraham's trumpet to more intensity. But she keeps mostly... Restrained on here. Now, I will say, uh, visually, if you do check out the YouTube video, we can call this band a hair band uh, <laughs> because, man, they've all got all kinds of hair. Uh, <laughs> uh, Hazad has got a, a really like a, a man bun and a big hairdo and a quite impressive beard. And then um, on uh, uh, trumpet, uh, Avraham herself has got a really kind of a frizzy, impressive hairdo going, but you've got to give the big beard award to uh, Peskov on the drums. The ZZ Top <laughs> Award. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he, It's amazing he can execute these uh, really detailed lines without his beard getting in the way. <laughs> and uh, coming up on that, uh, yeah, uh, Netzer's just got a little bit of stubble going in, in the video hmm. there. So anyway, it's a well, real you beard. Have to have your, you have to have your Frank beard in the band, don't you? Yeah, you have to get your beard going in there. Um, yeah. I want to I want to mention though about the trumpet solo and this is a really East European sound. I remember um, the recently deceased um, Tomasz Stanko. I heard a, I'd heard a few records of his, and it, it it's got this really sad sort of melancholy sort of uh, yeah kind of, uh, wide sound tone, to yeah. it. And she's she picks that up. I feel yeah. like she's in that kind of yeah. It's not technical at all. It's just very uh, sonorous and uh, yeah uh, warm sounding. Yeah, uh, the next tune. Is uh, number four is Kebero. Now this is interesting. Um, there's some rhythmic uh, elements that are interesting on this album here, and this piece and the next one. Uh, it's a fast six four, which is a tempo we don't hear uh, a meter we don't hear very often. Um, so it's in six four with repeating bass notes and a kind of a modal uh, melody horn line that gives a Middle Eastern feel to it. Uh, Peskov gets a lot of nice cymbal work here on the drums that keeps it intense. And uh, um, Mikhaili takes a free-form piano solo uh, that gets some nice horn backing and is built up with the intensifying drumming. It comes to a still point, and then uh, Hazan brings things back uh, with some bass uh, to some more sparse drumming. And then now there seems to be like an eight-beat meter uh, when it reforms. So it goes into something new. Uh, Nitzer uh, plays a solo then on uh, Zerna, this reed instrument, mm -hmm. which will really transport you. Uh, these crying <laughs> really... microtonal sounds are one of the high points, I thought, in the uniqueness of the album. It's like crying from the deserts to you. Uh, and so you won't hear this in New Orleans, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Couldn't imagine. Uh, yeah. So after that sound, uh, which I thought maybe they should have called this tune the next title, but the next title is called Desert Snake, which I think came out of the basket after that Zerna, uh, those microtones came out. Uh, here, uh, Hazan switches over to the Jimbri and he jams out a bit 
on it. Uh, and then he gets a groove going. It's sort of like a Moroccan hoedown. Uh, <laughs> so you have to get on your dancing sandals or whatever <laughs> if they were. Call anything happening there a hoedown, yeah, I guess. A hoedown. Uh, and, th and this one is also in 6-4. It's really uh, rhythmically interesting. Uh, there's some cool soulful horn lines added over that. And then uh, we get the, kind of a jimbery breakdown. And now it ends up in a 4-4 riff with some subdivided drums joining in. Uh, Netzer comes in over the bass and drum jam for some wailing sax. Uh, and then it kind of changes the mode, goes into a different mode and scale configuration, and then Abraham joins in on trumpet. Finally, the original theme uh, returns, but with more intensity and rhythm, and the jimbre comes back to fade us out. All right. uh, track six is Olam, another 6-8 uh, uh, kind of figure. Or this one's not 6-4, but 6-8. This is more of like a waltzing thing. And we get another bass ostinato line. Uh, it starts out with some drum fills. Slow snaking horn lines and, and piano come in. There's some harmonic tensions added to the, mo the mode that are unexpected. Michele takes a piano solo with big open chords and... Uh, Everham comes in with a kind of out, out there doodly uh, trumpet solo while things get loose a bit before the groove returns. And then the sax uh, doubles the bass ostinato for an ending. Uh, then we get an unusual uh, track on here. Seven is called Old Tart. And, uh, <laughs> Great title. A, yeah. These rolling intervals and open piano chords introduce uh, a vocal from uh, Rosa Salmon. And uh, the melody has a really lifting harmonic shift in one spot. It doesn't really get repeated. It just goes to a place that you don't expect. Uh, the horns play the melody together then over the drum fills by Peskov and chiming piano chords. Uh, Hazan plays a bowed bass solo uh, over that. And uh, there's some kind of echoey vocal effects uh, before Sama returns with the uh, vocal, which is doubled by the horns in unison to take the track out. Uh, kind of haunting and uh, unique uh, tune. So, yeah, I enjoyed this recording. It's uh, got unique Middle Eastern uh, instruments and rhythms, as well as concept, uh, focusing on, you know, a modal approach, which was used in jazz, but uh, introducing some different tones, uh, finding some Middle Eastern modes as well. Uh, and then you've got this uh, constant uh, groove uh, over the you know which works with modal music a lot sometimes they're a bit uh, static but they they do give this band a unique concept to work from and it is interesting and engaging uh, so yeah I enjoyed it uh, and I definitely like to see this group live I'm sure it would be a, a, a blast to uh, groove along with this would be quite an experience yeah I thought um, you said this was modal I think I'm I'm under the impression that the the modal kind of uh, inspiration came from the Middle East where they're kind of drawing on, you know, right. just local sort of um, tones rather than say the, the modal jazz period. Um, I, my favorite track on this was Desert Snake. I thought that was, just, there were a lot of really interesting elements in that track. Yeah, yeah. And part of the thing is some of these tracks like Desert Snake and um, Kebero also with the Middle Eastern instruments and the modes, they, they kind of outshine a lot of the other tracks because they're just so unusual. So you, you hear that and you kind of like, then they'll go back to something a little more um, ordinary to our ears, and you're kind of like, "Oh, where where are all those really cool colors that we heard yeah. before?" But that's just me. It's I think this is really um, 
it, it kind of came across as a track by track thing rather than as an like a cohesive album. But mm. it's no less enjoyable for that. I liked it a lot. I thought it yeah. was good, especially certain tracks, like I said. Yeah, I like, I mean, you know, the idea of, um, of course, a lot of music, especially folk music is in different cultures is modal and some classical mm. music too. Uh, and then in the 60s, uh, when, you know, jazz musicians started to just take that approach as something new and fresh, you know, as uh, right. Miles Davis focused on. Um, but that modal approach is, you know, more native to a lot of people in other cultures around the world and probably easy to identify with. And then they have their own uh, unique modes in each culture, uh, you know, that, you know, their their own instruments yeah. were tuned around. And so when they hear sort of these other modes in jazz, it probably sparks an idea uh, from their own cultures. And so it's interesting to see when they can add their own uh, kind of unique spin and uh, take on those. So, yeah, really yeah. interesting. Uh, I'd so like modes, to hear some yeah, more. Modes are used like, oh, exclu- you know, folk music exclusively uses modes, I think. Um, and it's, it has a sense of like it springing from the earth or something like that. Like it's sort yeah. of like really something of the earth. And then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where you have all the church modes in Gregorian chant where it's kind of floaty sounding. So there's no real anchor, anchoring into yeah. the earth. You're kind of in the spiritual realm, you know. What I like um, too in in the modal things is like when, you know, uh, you get a mode that's explored, and then mm. you can do different things. Like in in the first track, it's not really that modal. It has that well, you know, this this three chord thing. But then you take one step outside of that, and mm. it creates such a tension right. when you bring it back in, or when you have a a modal piece that's on a mode, and then. When the mode shifts to something new, it's really like a new dimension, right. uh, you know, and you don't get that same feeling in sort of um, chord progression based music because your 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 mind has been conforming and trying to follow the progression, and you know ultimately you know getting back to that tonic or a new tonic, but you know the dominant and subdominant and you know kind of things. And then when the modes shift, it's a different kind of feeling altogether. Uh, which like almost like entering a new color, and uh, so that's always kind of enjoyable. Um, and the approach here is, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. You can hear a lot of um, if anyone who's interested in exploring this in classical music, um, you can hear a lot of modes being used in early 20th century music, really the modernist right. era, and uh, up until World War II, which really just ended everything good about the arts for a while. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Except for movies. <laughs> so, on to second base. And I've got to say this, uh, well, although I have to say, Shehazan has a very interesting album cover. Uh, check out the oh. artwork on that. Yeah. Um, but uh, this one definitely wins the album cover of the week, <laughs> the episode <laughs> award. This is um, uh, Hard Times by bassist Michael Feinberg on the Fresh Sound label. And it has a, a Western album cover, oh, something yeah. out of a Morricone... Yeah, um, it's like a Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah, Clint Eastwood <laughs> title, and I like it's got in quotations when the when the going got tough, the tough got swinging. It's <laughs> a, a great uh, thing to have on a jazz album. Um, here we have uh, the uh, up and coming. I'm not sure how many albums he's got as his own on a leader. Maybe this is the sixth one. Uh, Michael I do have Feinberg. To say, 
Yeah, if I came across this in a store, I wouldn't know it was a jazz album no, just from the no. cover, you know? It's, it's just like a soundtrack, like yeah, to a Western. Yeah. Um, but we've got Michael Feinberg on bass and electric bass. Uh, Billy Buss on trumpet, who puts in some fine work on here. Uh, Randy Brecker as a guest on trumpet who doesn't get enough to say uh, <laughs> on here. Yeah, you um, got this great soloist on this track and he hardly yeah. plays. It's really <laughs> uh Godwin Lewis on alto sax, Noah Preminger on tenor sax, uh, Oren Evans on piano, uh, yeah. Leo Genovese on uh, other keyboards, uh, which includes some organ, uh, some synthy things, and I think electric piano, uh, and uh, Jeff Tane Watts on drums, who puts a big sculpting sound on here, and also Gabriel Globus Hoynich on percussion. Um, yeah, this album um, is uh, it takes you through a lot of different uh, areas and uh, styles mm. of music. Uh, and uh, let's see, starts out with uh, a piece just called Introduction, uh, which begins with a uh, electric piano kind of wash sound <laughs> and gentle horn figures. Uh, the piano soloing is. Um, sort of traded off with electric piano. So you have both keyboardists on here and also some synth sounds. And Feinberg gets some deep bass lines in here. And you also get uh, a feel for Watts's unique kind of textures that he plays on drums. If you haven't heard him before, uh, whatever album he plays on, he makes a mark, uh, especially with his uh, rhythms and cymbal work. Uh, I saw him play with uh, Michael Brecker, many years mm. back in Osaka, the now disappeared Blue Note that was once in Osaka. Um, but uh, he's definitely a, a very individualistic drummer. Um, track two, Nardis. Oh, by the way, yeah. I just want to say this. I, I heard that in headphones and this kind of a, this, the, there's a bit of studio stuff going on in here too with the somebody's uh, moving the pan knob back and forth so you can hear certain yeah. sounds going from ear Those to keyboard ear. keyboard sounds wash back and forth on this track. All right. Yeah. So they kind of manipulated them a little bit. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, two, Nardis, uh, Miles Davis tune. Uh, Watts lays the beat and Feinberg puts an ostinato bass line over it. Uh, Orrin Evans gets some rapid repeated notes in an intro. Uh, and then... Uh, Billy Buss squeezes the melody lines on the trumpet a little bit different from uh, the version you may be used to. Evans starts hmm. piano solo over the repeating bass, but it's often running over a racing bass line and then handed off to uh, Billy Buss for a rapid fire solo. Uh, he does a lot of good trumpet work on this album. Uh, I've heard him before, but this one left more of an impression on me. Uh, he's left alone with a bit uh, for a bit with just the drums before the bass and piano come back in. The melody is back with electric piano kind of percolating uh, underneath before the bass line uh, returns and stretches out to the end. Track three, the Husafel Stone. Uh, this starts with a piano vamp that gives uh, Watts some nice beat mixing space, uh, kind of his trademark uh, in the intro. The modal melody shifts fluidly on trumpet and sax, and then Evans is off charging on a solo over Feinberg's walking bass. Uh, Billy Buss gets a trumpet solo next, and he's very agile here. 
uh, weaving lines with lots of intervals and making it way up into the upper register. And I really like how he takes chances in his solos. Uh, we don't hear that so much these days, especially from studio recordings uh, where players can go back and uh, fix their mistakes until they get the solo they had imagined. But it often makes things kind of antiseptic. Uh, you know, when you listen back to, you know, the recordings in the 60s of Freddie Hubbard and Lee Morgan, what made them so great is they did make mistakes, uh, but it's how they recovered and worked those into their overall arc of what they were playing right. that I thought made them great players. And nowadays, you know, they just go back and uh, do that uh, part of the track over again. But I, I really like uh, Billy Buss's uh, adventurousness uh, in his trumpet solos. Yeah, me too. We had talked about this on a previous episode, hadn't yeah. we? That mistakes are really just like a way, a door to a new sort of uh, idea. Yeah, in, in music and you know, improvised music, and really a lot of the arts. You know, if you're yeah, I like when that. people when players like challenge themselves, whatever it is, if it's technically, harmonically, or melodically, they sort of paint themselves into a difficult uh, right. pos position, and. You know, they may not have known how they were going to resolve something or get out of it, but then they're forced into that. And then what comes next and how they get out of that is often uh, really uh, interesting. And so I like players who sort of build themselves into a difficult uh, kind of uh, spot and then get out of it. And I, I sense that in uh, Billy Buss's trumpet playing. And so, uh, yeah, uh, that was fun. Uh, track four, Walk Spirit, Talk Spirit. This is a McCoy Tyner tune. Uh, it's a nice groove with Latin percussion. Smooth horns on the sexy melody. There's a funky distorted piano solo. How did they do that? I don't know. It's like a regular <laughs> piano, but it's like uh, distorted through a uh, yeah. uh, guitar amp. Um, probably like a, it's probably a distortion pedal it must somehow. must be something. Yeah, yeah, that's what it sounds like. Because it, it yeah. doesn't sound like a synth. It sounds like a real piano sound, but it's distorted. Uh, Watts lays it thick behind the piano. And then there's also congas in there, too. Uh, there's a piano vamp out with more watts uh, playing some beats and then uh, kind of lightening up over the conga to fade the tune out. Uh, track five is also a McCoy Tyner tune, Three Flowers. Uh, here we get a, a Genovese uh, piano uh, trio kind of format here. It's got a six-eighth feel with Feinberg taking the first solo. Uh, piano solo next with some intense runs, uh, hammering some low chords. It turns placid for a bit, and then finally it gets funky and frantic. Uh, yeah, this one, um, what did I say here? Uh, oh, boy. I don't know. Maybe I didn't say anything. <laughs> no, okay. I thought I did. Oh, well, anyway. I had an idea, and then it just went away. Oh, right. well. no. uh, six, janky in the middle. Yeah. Uh, this one has uh, both piano and electric piano, and they're doodling kind of in an intro until a bass and drum groove uh, get going into 6 4. Uh, you've got some reverby trumpet and sax uh, giving the melody. Funky bass and electric piano set a hypnotic groove for a nice trumpet solo again by Billy Buss. He surfs the modes, uh, finding good tension notes and mixing up the rhythm. Uh, Godwin Lewis is up on next on alto sax for a rhythmically tight solo. And then Feinberg drives the ostinato uh, bass underneath uh, as the trumpet and sax trade. 
and we'll get back to the melody for a final round and bass joins the horns uh for the final repeated riff uh, kind of a funky one here uh, I, oh i remember what i remember what i wanted to say oh. was that leo genovese is playing i really uh liked his playing throughout this entire album just mm. wanted to make sure i got that in there he, he had a really uh good sound and just really um tasteful it, playing throughout choice yeah. to have two keyboard players you know on an album especially yeah. like you know with Oren evans who's kind of a right. you know a, getting a up-and-coming name uh there too uh and to have um, yeah. them doing different things but yeah genovese in general here he's, he's he, taking he drew the, my attention yeah the other um the other keyboards electric piano and stuff but here he's on that fact track he's uh, featured more uh seven uh every damn day i guess this is a sort of a social commentary on uh various things that happened in America in the last year or so. Uh, mournful horns introduce a melody, uh, but blow freely over the slow beat. Things spiral down as a kind of dirge develops with the help of the piano. Then the alto emerges uh, for a bit, and then Watts pounds out a hard beat to the end. There's not really any true soloing in here. It's sort of a composed piece. Hmm. Uh, track eight, a Lawrence song. I think this is uh, one he wrote for his wife, uh, Feinberg. It's, it's really ballad. Yeah, very yeah. pretty. And Feinberg here switches to electric, and uh, he takes a bass solo over other bass lines. Uh, so I assume it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, a multiple tracking bass. Uh, the tune gets more energetic with Watt's beat and uh, subdivisions that he adds. Uh, and Genovese has a electric piano solo here as well. Then things get quiet for a bit with an alto sax solo, and then they uh, return to the pretty theme for the end. So a uh, mm. nice ballad. Uh, track nine, Monkeys Never Cramp. <laughs> Great <laughs> Not title. Not sure what that means, but it's a nice title. This is I think, a fun... I think it might have to do with them swinging <laughs> in the branches, and they never like get a muscle cramp could and be, fall yeah. or anything. That'd be yeah, dangerous if something they like fell that. out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is a funky and fun uh, horn and synth intro. Uh, the synth gets a solo. It's uh, Genovese on synth there. And Randy Brecker is up next. And as always, uh, he gets some nice lines in, but it's over before <laughs> it begins. And so I, I wish they had given him a few more choruses to blow out on and you know do all the things that Randy Brecker does. So it's a very... Yeah. Uh, or at least... Or at least giving him more tracks on the album or something. He's only yeah. on this track. Yeah, yeah it's a very small uh, cameo here. Uh, track 10 is uh, a little weird one. It's called Outro. It's only a minute long. It's a short organ swilling, or swirling, rather, modulating uh, into a gospel kind of ending that feeds into the final track, which is the title track, Hard Times, which keeps the gospel-y thing going. Uh, it's a swinging tune uh, with trumpet and sax trading off the melody uh, into a, another inspired and playful trumpet solo by Billy Buss again, and they all come back uh, for the melody. So it's a mix of originals and uh, covers of jazz originals, Miles Davis, McCoy Tyner. Uh, Feinberg, although he's the leader, he shares the spotlight quite generously here. Uh, Watts puts his... Uh, identifiable touch with uh, his kind of signature type of drumming here. And there's an, a nice mix of variety and freedom. It's a bit uneven uh, in the material selection, uh, but overall pleasing. And I really enjoyed uh, 
the trumpet work by Billy Buss on this. Um, so a bass leader, but he uh, shares with his big cast of other major players. Indeed he does. And uh, you mentioned Billy Buss, who was great throughout. I also enjoyed, as I said, Leo Genovese. I liked his playing a lot. Or, Genovese, you say? Genovese, Is he the American way? Genovese, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I liked all of the inventive solos and ensemble work on this album. It just uh, kept the ear engaged throughout. There are a lot of, there's a lot of variety um, and great solos, too. Really nice ideas. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Recommend it. I liked yeah. it. Check it yeah. out. Um, and finally, well, yeah. I saved this a real for, treat. for last because, <laughs> yeah. um, well, this is actually, I should not say it's a bass uh, led album because it's shared it's billed equally among the players because yeah. uh, they're all major figures um, but uh, the bass player is of course the most recorded uh, bass player in jazz Mr. Ron Carter uh, who's recorded always great uh, to hear him yeah, yeah I don't know more than 2,000 recordings uh, that he's uh, or sessions that he's been on and um, he shares the bill here with uh, great uh, drummer Jack Dijonette and the Cuban pianist uh, Gonzalo Rubalcaba. And I should mention uh, Ron Carter's in his 80s now, and uh, Jack Dijonette is late 79, I think. Uh, so these are elder statesmen in jazz, but they're still playing with a uh, youthful vigor. And uh, they've both performed and recorded with uh, Rubalcaba before. So this is sort of a reunion in ways. Uh, it's on uh, five passion records and the title is called Skyline. And um, so Cuban born uh, Rubalcaba re reunites with uh, his mentors. That's how this uh, recording is built. Um, and let's see, they've played before, uh, I think Ron Carter, on the album Diz, which was uh, 1994, and with Jack Dijonette on Images, uh, this was maybe around 1991, and also The Blessing uh, around the same time, and uh, some other recordings uh, on Blue Note. And uh, then Rubel Cabra was uh, up and coming around that time, showing his uh, virtuosic technique and unique improvisations. And uh, he's been nominated for some Grammy Awards as a composer and performer. And he's got two Grammys for Best Latin Jazz Album and uh, for the producer of Charlie Hayden's albums uh, Nocturne and Land of the Sun. Uh, so we've got a uh, intriguing trio here. And apparently they're going to record three albums together. And this is the first of the set. Uh, so more to look forward to. Um, yeah, in fact, I'd look forward to the other two after hearing this one. Yeah, and uh, so here, uh, each of the musicians uh, offers up a pair of tunes they've re previously recorded. Uh, we start out with uh, Lagrimas Negras. This is uh, Miguel Metamoros' tune. Uh, this is, a, I guess, a uh, Cuban uh, romantic kind of bolero tune. Uh, the opening melody by Rubel Cabra is uh, into a very rhythmic uh, Ron Carter bass solo, and then uh, Rubel Cabra solos after that. Uh, he gets a real clear articulation, lots of space between the choppy left-hand chords. The rhythm carries it along. Uh, the intensity builds, and he has some intense hammering and runs before returning to the melody. So... Uh, you know, it's this uh, kind of bolero 
pace builds up a tension that uh, you know sort of um, I'm, it I'm kind of a, feeds yeah. something up inside. Yeah, what was that? I'm kind of amazed at how much the rhythm section brings to this. I mean, they, Ron Carter, you mentioned he had his solo. He's got such presence. You, know, you, yeah, you really, yeah. your ear gets drawn towards that bass sound. It's a big, fat sound, really mm -hmm. warm. Um, and, you know, what he's playing, and the Jeanette has this kind of Latin feel in, in the drums to the Latin rhythm. I was, yeah, they, they, uh, they brought a lot for only two people. It's amazing. Yeah, I like, you know, Dejanet is a, uh, he's not a, a uh, heavy drummer. He's much more in, uh, a finesse and textured uh, player. So if you, you listen carefully to the the uh, small things he does, both in the cymbal work and then, you know, textures that he gets on the snare and even on the toms, uh, there's a lot of subtlety uh, that comes out really well uh, in a trio format. Um, track two, Gypsy. This is a Ron Carter original. It has a relaxed bass intro. And Ruble Cobb tinkles in on the <laughs> keyboards with that. Uh, Dijonet starts a cymbal beat and Carter gets to walking bass line. And he has some really interesting skips and glissandos uh, in there. You know, he settles into a groove, but he always keeps it uh, interesting with some unexpected elements. Uh Rubokaba plays chords and lines with a lot of room to breathe in between. Then he inserts some kind of dissonant rumbling passages uh, that dissipate into runs. And then the tempo kind of picks up uh, mid-tune. Uh, Carter varies up the bass lines again. Uh, the tempo winds to a stop. And then the bass and piano slowly step to a resolved ending. Hmm. Uh, three is Silver Hollow. This is a Dejanet original. It's got a rubato piano intro, and then a slow waltzing tempo is set by Dejanet and Carter. Rubokaba delicately places piano phrases between Carter's bass intervals. Uh, Carter keeps it rhythmic as he gets some melodic space, and he adds some really pretty glissandos, bends, and overtones as well. Uh, and Dijonette, although it's his original tune and he sort of hands it over to Carter, he has some very delicate symbol work uh, throughout. Uh, nice, subtle piece here. Yeah. Five, Promenade, uh, Rubokaba. Uh, original, this has a drum intro, a nice snare accents that go into a slow swing on this tune. Yeah, it sounds like he's using brushes on this too, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. this is dedicated to Ron Carter. Uh, there are some sudden pauses in the melody that keep you on your toes. Carter takes the first solo, and he stays in the lower register. And Rubokaba is up on next. Uh, he plays uh, rather relaxed and wistful lines, uh, and then he hands it back over to Carter for some more bass. And after a reprise of the melody, Dijonet gets a chance to showcase some complex rhythms and nice dynamics. And the bass and piano add some riffs for flavor when they uh, bring it to a close. Uh, now we've got another uh, kind of Cuban tune by Jose Antonio Mendez, Novia Mia. Uh, this has a really gentle uh, feel to it. It's a piano and bass duet. Uh, Rocaba shows a very soft touch and even more from Carter. Actually, uh, if you listen to this uh, just casually, you'll think it's a piano solo piece because Ron Carter is barely there. You'll have to double hmm. check. Uh, 
he plays the bare minimum necessary. So this is really lovely minimalist uh, piece uh, on this one, uh, Novia Mia. Uh, and then six is uh, a Carter original uh, quiet place. That's a, a medium slow waltz with a closely harmonized piano melody. Uh, it's uh, the harmonic tones are very close together. Rubalcaba has a melodic relaxed solo uh, with occasional legato runs and Dejanet keeps it light uh, with the brushes while Carter keeps the waltz pulse uh, with some interesting intervals in his lines. Seven is another uh, Dejanet original, Ahmad the Terrible. Uh, <laughs> this one features uh, bendy bass notes and glissandos in the bass uh, with a sparse piano opening. The main tune starts with a series of modulating piano figures, and the piano and bass uh, double the bass a kind of line in here. Uh, after the theme, it shifts into a swing with Carter alternating walking lines and one-note bass patterns for the sections. And Rubalcaba swings his solo over those, and Dijonet keeps it riding with precise cymbal work and tasty fills. Carter varies up the bass line with some different intervals uh, as it goes along, and then Dijonet gets some creative drumming under some chord vamping before they return to the original intro figure. And then he gets some more fills in the gaps before the end. So uh, kind of interesting original piece uh, from the drummer. Who do you suppose Ahmad is? You think it's Ahmad Jamal? Oh, I wonder. Yeah. I was wondering about that too. It's, a, pian it's a piano driven yeah. piece. So I was kind of thinking, even yeah. though it's by the Jeanette. The you know? terrible. Hmm. Yeah, it could be yeah. like, you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, like, it doesn't mean terrible bad. It means terrible, mm. like, uh, terrifying, yeah. you know, terrifying. like, you know, like frightening you know. <laughs> monster player. Yeah. 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 Uh, eight is, uh, Siempre Maria. Another, uh, this is a Rubalcaba original, and this is another, uh, Bolero tune, mm. uh, Cuban uh, style. The syncopated me melody creates a sense of expectation. Carter takes a short solo. And uh, Rubalcaba comes right back in. Uh, midway through, Carter uh, sets a slow two-note pattern groove that uh, Dejanet fills into, and that pushes Rubalcaba into interesting, complex, rhythmic ideas. And uh, if you listen to the drums on this one, you'll see that Dejanet adds a kind of crispy, tight cymbal into that fun. It's almost like, yeah, you know, your Rice Krispies in the morning or something. <laughs> it's really tight into that, so it's good. Yeah. And uh, the last track on the album is called Ron Jack Ruba, one word. Uh, I, uh, melding of their names together. Apparently, from the album notes, this was a spontaneous recording that they didn't know was happening. They were just uh, jamming around. I'm not sure if that's true. But, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, very, um, how can I say? Uh, it's a bit old timey to me. It's kind old of old timey, a, but also yeah. uh, inventive and carefree because uh, maybe they, they didn't think this was going to be included in it for anything. So they sort of let loose a little bit. So Dijonet starts out uh, with a medium swing, fun. As you say, it's an old, old time kind of just basic swing. Uh, Carter digs in with uh, stop and start bass lines, and then Rubalcaba finds. Uh, kind of fluid swinging lines uh, through this, as but the swing gets harder as they go along. 
Uh, Carter gets some space for soloing with uh, only the drums. Uh, the piano drops out for a while. And then uh, Rubokawa comes back in and things build up with uh, heavier chords that he plays. Uh, he starts extending the lines harmonically and he works up into some uh, trilling. Uh, and after things get intense, they turn to a bit daintiness uh, towards the ending. Uh, and maybe because they... <laughs> They plan on including this. They play around with the final notes uh, just uh, in good-natured uh, uh, fun at the end. Um, anyway, um, overall, it's uh, kind of engaging recording, a lot of freshness, a variety of material. Uh, players who have played together in before, reuniting kind of uh, old friends having fun together. Uh, this one, they're including... Uh, a few tunes that each player has recorded before. They seem familiar with the material. And supposedly we're going to get two more recordings out of this combination, uh, which uh, seems to be a nice mix of uh, elder statesmen and jazz. Uh, Rubokabra is still pretty young, uh, in his 50s. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think he enjoys playing with these jazz legends. And uh, so you get, you know, a mainstream kind of modern post-bop jazz with a heavy Latin influence in there too. Inspired playing, uh, great technique, uh, just the right amount of drums with finesse, uh, you know, Ron Carter's uh, confidence and deep sound and Rubokaba's, uh, you know, fantastic technique and uh, Latin influence. So yeah, I enjoyed this one a lot and I'm really interested to see what they uh, pull together for the next set. Yeah, me too. I wanted to mention I loved Ron Carter all the way through this. Or all three of them were great. But especially on the last track, the Ron Jack Rubo one, Carter is doing something really amazing on this track. He's always kind of – he's so he's sort of putting in these little solo bits while he's pinning down the harmony for the other players. It was like an amazing yeah. thing. This is someone with a lot of experience that really uh, knows, knows his trade really well. And, you, and I thought you heard it a lot on the – we hear it all the way through, but you hear it especially – on the uh, the last track, yeah, this is a great, enjoyable album. It's kind of loose, um, good feeling all the way through, and it ends on this uh, joyous note. I enjoyed it a lot. Looking forward to the next two. Yeah, what I like about Ron Carter is, you know, you, you think you know, bass is important to the groove, and so you know, bass players lay down the groove. But what I like about Ron Carter is he never lets you get too comfortable. Like mm. you know, you you can't completely get into some sort of uh, mesmerized uh, kind of zone with his playing because he's going to change it up and uh, to keep you on your toes yeah <laughs> he's going to stop doing something or add something new that will you know make you stay awake if you're following what he's doing on the bass so he always keeps it interesting and that's admirable for you know someone still in his 80s uh, he can keep up he hasn't lost anything and um, yeah he's still uh add some wit and uh, kind of unexpected things in his playing, uh, even at that age. So may he keep plucking he, those bass strings uh, may he keep for another decade at least. All the way through. Yeah. Yeah. So there you have so it. So that turned it. Yeah. yeah. All, the, all those bases. There we are. We're, all those uh, bases. Bases loaded. We've got... Uh, Three bass in the jazz and a bass in the class duo to drive you to the home plate on this Halloween Eve, episode yep. 35 of Adult Music, the podcast. 
with music for the mature mind. It's been yeah. a nice uh, episode. We didn't go three hours this week, so um, yeah, we we just we were back to our kind of normal length since we restarted in uh, yeah autumn. So I guess that's around uh, the two hour length, huh? Yeah, right around two there. hours, a little, a little over, two, over hours. two hours. Yeah, that's yeah. okay. Uh, we've got a lot more in we're, the. We're, we're still aiming for an hour and a half, right? <laughs> yeah, we were aiming for an hour and a half. Yeah. So. Well, the part of the reason we're going so long though lately is because I've been going track by track through the uh, classical recordings, and I feel like that's an important thing to do with. Um, you know, contemporary composers, because these are really unique recordings that might need a little unpacking. And if we were doing all Beethoven, you know, I don't think I have to go through every track of those. Although we, I, we went through all five Beethoven concertos last week pretty quickly, but nevertheless, right. we did a lot of chatting too, though. So there was a lot, of, you know, that one went pretty long for that reason. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it'll depend on uh, whatever we've got on the menu for that week. And uh, we've got a lot of things. Uh, specials coming up in the next few weeks for the fall. I've got so much jazz. Uh, I don't really know what to feature. Uh, yeah, we'll have some more contemporary now. music next week, by the way, listeners, in oh, okay. classical music. So. Could get some more avant-garde things. I've got lots of recordings. I've got some brass features and things uh, set to go. We've got uh, possible vocal things. And I, I hate to say this because, well, it's still technically October, but there's a a bunch of Christmas recordings coming out, um, yeah. but I just can't. I can't let myself uh, listen to any of those until at least Thanksgiving, because uh, if I do that, so no one, no one will get Christmas presents. <laughs> yeah, so I'll already be scrooged out. Yeah, yeah. I sort of see for for most Americans, like the holiday season starts um, um Thanksgiving. Right, and then if you're like a Christian, it would start with Advent, which I think this year is November 28th or so. Right. For me, the whole thing starts with uh, the feast of Saint Cecilia, the patron saint of music in the Catholic Church, and that's right. November 22nd. So for me, that's when it all kind of starts out for me. I start a little early with the Christmas songs. Um, I've got a few classical recordings I could talk. There's there's a there's a good one. The, of medieval Christmas music. I want to really push that on the listeners because I feel like we should be listening to more of that. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, but I don't I don't know that I'm going to have three new ones. They, they might be from the last year. There's a Legrenzi Christmas Mass, which isn't really Christmassy at all, but it's, it's supposed to be for Christmas. And um, something from last year, I think I'll have. It, it, oh, it depends, unless something great comes out in the next few weeks. If we do something Christmassy, I think we can... Yeah, I think we should because some um, first year, you know, time. we should celebrate Christmas with That's the right. uh, the listeners, you know. And then once we get in the new year, we uh, we've been uh, discussing to have a best of the first year of adult music. Uh, and, I think uh, we should do that right before New Year's. We should have. Oh, uh, we could do that too. Know, yeah. Give our top ten lists. So we've been thinking about a sort of bizarre approach to it, uh, where yeah. uh, we uh, each pick the opposite category that we usually prepare. And, yeah, the uh, ones we liked ones. the best, like the jazz records that I like the best and the classical records that Russ liked yeah. the best. And then at the end, each of us will get to add recordings from our categories, you know, yeah. to the ones that the other person did. You yeah, know. this should be a fun way to sort of uh, end out the yeah. year. And uh, I think I could come up with 10 jazz recordings from this year. Yeah, easily. Oh, yeah. No problem. <laughs> yeah, what do we have? Uh, yeah. 35 episodes? Six and each, what three on each episode? Or each. Or like a yeah. hundred, <laughs> hundreds of things, hundreds of Jeez. things to go back and Should choose. Should be easy. From. Yeah, no problem at all. I always, all right. I always say to people um, that my um, my top ten 
list has always has like 30 recordings on it you know (laughs) you know but then they say why don't you call it a 30 a top 30 list and of course it's because that list has 50 recordings on it you know so (laughs) yep yeah (laughs) not enough time to listen to everything right all right so thanks for uh staying with us to the end on this episode 35 of adult music podcast the podcast with music for the mature mind uh once again uh, if you enjoyed the podcast please do uh like subscribe send a comment uh to us uh, help us get up into the browsing categories or if you'd like to contact us directly uh please do by email at adult music podcast that's all one word at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and we'll be back again next week for episode 36 with more music for the mature mind until then happy halloween and we'll see you in november Thank you.